It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The pictures show the whole crime scene and clearly show the skull that never made it to the coroner. And my source told me something else. The photos were taken by the NOPD, by officers at the 4th District Station. It turns out that the spot on the levee where the car and Henry's body had been torched is barely a block away from that station. Henry's mother Edna didn't know that the burnt car was still just a block away when she came to this station trying to get police attention. It was two and a half months after the car had been burned. Edna Glover still didn't know exactly what had happened to her son, but she told the police an alarming story. How her son had been shot. How her other son, Edward, had taken Henry to the police compound at Haven School for help and instead had been beaten by police. And how police officers had taken the vehicle with her son in it. The police recorded her story as a missing persons report and filed it away. They told my mother that uh, they were going to get back with her. They was going to come out to her house and talk to her, but no one did. No one called us back. We didn't get any answers. Father, we come now, Lord, asking you that you would keep this sister, this mother, Lord. It would be another eight months before Henry's remains were finally identified through DNA evidence and returned to the family for burial. There's one had not come home, nor is he above ground. I didn't know that they burnt him. My mother told me this like a day before the funeral. So I'm thinking I'm going to kiss him and say goodbye. Thank you, Lord Master, for bringing that situation to an end. Amen. Amen. How did you feel when finally somebody from law enforcement came to you and said, we want to know what happened that day? Oh, man. That day, this lady come knock on the door. I said, oh, Lord, then answer my prayers. I said, he didn't answer my prayers. And I just said, thank you, Lord. And like I told I said, I never thought they had people out there who would go after them. And she told me she gonna, uh, she said, I promise you, you gonna get justice. That's wrong with they did, my brother. It's wrong. My mind is messed up. Every time I pass by that school, I get flashbacks. Sometimes I dream about it. I was thinking after a while it'd go away. It's not going away. I used to scare my wife waking up on the side of her in deep sweats. I forgive that police officer. I forgive him with all my heart. Because if I don't, God ain't going to forgive me when I do something wrong. I forgive him. I forgive him. And I'm trying to deal with this every day. 
It's hard, man. I feel like something just is gone that I had in my heart is gone. I ain't gonna get it. I can't see him no more. Can't do the things we normally do. You know, I miss my brother. I miss him. Nobody will be missed. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, May 8, 2023. So I have been told. Wow, I can only say I'm very aware we are encroaching on, it's been one year since the Tops Massacre, Buffalo, New York. Uh, I was in Buffalo not that long ago uh, for the sentencing of Peyton Gendron. We certainly spoke quite a bit about that over the past year plus at this point. Um, Even with the shooting that happened down in Allen, Texas, where they've had reports recently, I don't even think they've identified all of the victims, unless I'm mistaken. But they said the shooter looks like he might have had some white supremacist leanings Social media posts voicing his disgust with black people. Heard that before, especially this time of year. We certainly devoted quite a bit of coverage to what happened in Buffalo. I think that is important. But man, for the 14 plus years that we have been on the air, there are few cases that we have devoted more time, energy, guests to than Hurricane Katrina and what has happened Subsequently, uh, I mean, we're encroaching on 20 years. It'll be 18 years this summer, I think, unless my math is bad. But we're encroaching on two decades since all of that. And I mean, just all areas of people activity, in my view, some of our best work has been on Hurricane Katrina. Uh, I mean, we don't have time to get to everybody, but Anitra Brown with the New Orleans Tribune. She's been with us repeatedly. Local journalist down in New Orleans, native storm survivor. She's been with us many times. Uh, Gary Rivlin, we actually double dipped on Gary Rivlin. We read his book, Katrina After the Storm, which confirms what I just said, racism, white supremacy in all areas of people activity. He even stayed at a Louisiana plantation when he first went down to cover the devastation working for the New York Times. But he came to visit with us, and we read his book in our book club, cover to cover. Dr. Leonard Moore, Black Rage in New Orleans, some of the incidents of New Orleans history that are in the book we're talking about today, we covered with Dr. Leonard Moore way back when, uh, PBS's June Cross. We talked about her documentary, The Old Man in the Storm, uh, Kimberly Roberts Rivers. We talked about uh, her documentary as well, Trouble the Water. She also survived the storm. And then way back, I said 14 years, we got back on the air in February of 2009. May 2009, A.C. Thompson was a guest on our program. The audio that we heard at the beginning today, in fact, that was from PBS two times. PBS, their documentary series, Frontline law and disorder about the many suspicious killings of black males that occurred all throughout uh, Hurricane Katrina and the aftermath uh, 
the book that we're talking about today discusses Henry Glover specifically, but we had A.C. Thompson as a guest on the program in 2009. I had to go back and double check, like, wow, he was a guest here before that Frontlines documentary even existed. That is not exhaustive. That is just, we have spent a lot of it. Everybody should. I mean, that is one of the most important events to happen over the past 25 years. So I try to pay attention when there is material related to all of that. Just recently, I think the metaphor they used, Hot Off the Stove, a brand new book uh, about Henry Glover. Uh, as I said, I knew about Henry Glover, A.C. Thompson. I think he's even mentioned uh, not just in the PBS documentary, but also Spike Lee's documentary, the second one on Katrina, If God is Willing and the Creek Don't Rise. Extreme. In fact, this is important to what is happening right now. All of those mysterious, suspicious power outages that have been happening across the U.S., North Carolina, Florida, Washington State, and Oregon, and Arkansas, and all these other places. You end up in an area where you don't have electricity for a long time say, like what happened in New Orleans after Katrina, there are a number of hazards. It might be good to take precaution just with the memory of Henry Glover. The book that we will discuss today, Fire on the Levee, just about this one case, but there are so many um, that would be a good place to start, just that documentary or A.C. Thompson's work. Uh, but, wow, white vigilante during Hurricane Katrina. But so much material. Glad to have the opportunity to go back, especially because I think we can quickly forget these cases. What does Dr. Curry say? Black males are known to die. can kind of end up that, here we go again. Old Henry Glover. Yeah, he was probably looting anyway. Uh, our guest for today's broadcast, in addition to writing this here book. He worked in the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice for 14 years, where he handled some of the nation's most significant cases of police misconduct, Tamir Rice, hate crimes, and human trafficking. He is the founder of the Justice Innovation Lab, an organization that uses a data-informed approach to build a more effective and fair justice system. A pleasure to have him on the program and to uh, make sure that people are informed, know about what happened to Henry Glover after the storm. Joining us live, our guest, uh, Mr. Jared Fishman. Mr. Fishman, are you with us, sir? How are you doing? Thanks for having me on tonight. Thank you for sharing a bit of your uh, Spring Monday with us. Uh, looking forward to chatting. Brand new book, as I said, always try to encourage reading as well. Reading, more important than watching, oh, I don't know, Pulp Fiction. Uh, for our listeners, uh, Mr. Christian, anything that you would like to share with folks uh, about the work that you do in addition to writing Fire on the Levy? Yeah, so I am the executive director of Justice Innovation Lab. We work inside criminal justice systems to try to undo a lot of the harm that's baked into the system. 
Um, you know, throughout my 14 years as a prosecutor of the Civil Rights Division of DOJ, I traveled around the country. I worked with uh, communities at some of the largest moments of crisis. And the reality is so much of what we talked about is baked into the system. And the work that we're trying to do at Justice Innovation Lab is to undo that, to, to have better outcomes, better, safer communities, and uh, for people to live better lives. Awesome. Okay. Just fumbling around with my mute button. For folks who have not seen you, uh, Mr. Fishman, you are classified as a white man. Is that correct? Say that again? For those people who have not seen you, you are classified as a white man. Is that correct, Mr. Fishman? I am. I, I am. That's correct. Okay. Uh, for someone in the, the legal world, you'll appreciate definitions and the importance of words uh, this program, the cows, I use the term racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms. I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Can you read it to me one more time? I just want to make sure that I get all your words right. Absolutely. Make sure I give it slow. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Does such a system exist? Is that definition accurate? Sure, that system exists. I think in some ways it's too narrow. Uh, when we look at racist infrastructure, we look at white supremacy. These systems were built hundreds of years ago with the idea of subjugating other people. And some of that is passed on in the systems themselves that operate independent of whether or not anyone wants them to happen. Some of that's passed down through our cultures. Some of that's passed down through how we raise our families. Uh, any of it that is going to perpetuate that system, I think, is, is a part of that. Okay. I was processing uh, your response just my definition, a global system of people where you said different systems and we pass things down in our culture. Now, I don't know if you meant we as you speaking as a white person, white people collectively, but that's one of the things that I pointed out frequently when people talk about this. They will speak in general terms about everybody when this should be sometimes we're talking specifically about individuals classified as white. And I'm saying that that is the system, and then specifically whether they intend to or not, 
I'm saying that there, this is deliberate dedication, willful maintenance. Uh, it, this is not accidental or happenstance. I didn't get the introduction that I wanted today. Robert Charles. Whew. It's not just Katrina. New Orleans is one of our signature subject, subject areas for many reasons. Uh, but Robert Charles, that was where we were supposed to stay. This is not like this is just something that started being a problem 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So those, those are important distinctions because I think I did hear a sure, but those are specific deviations from what I said. Am I, am I just, you know, talking nonsense or you as a, a legal scholar, lawyer, uh, Mr. Fishman, am I making sense in, in the distinctions I'm making between what I said in my definition and your response, sir? Um, you know, I think, I think we probably agree, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm totally following where the differences are. Okay. Do you recall saying systems? I guess, I guess per, per, part of, part, part of, part of what I think is that things in, in, in hate, whether, whether okay, it's stop right there. Stop right there. Hate or hang on, hang on, Mr. Fishman. Hang on, Mr. Fishman, because I did ask a question, and I didn't say anything about hate. That's what I mean about deviating. So, do you recall saying systems? Yes. Okay, that's what I'm saying is a major deviation. I said the system, and that's a big one because people say that frequently that we have systems and all of that, and I'm saying. That's a major distinction in what I'm saying. The system Between on this the singular planet, and the plural? Yes. The system on this here planet that dominates everything, all areas of people activity, all the so-called countries, why we're talking about your book is the system of white supremacy racism. There are many areas, politics, economics, all of that, law enforcement. But everything is dominated by the system of white supremacy racism, which I say is individuals classified as white, dedicated to making sure that that happens. Not, I don't know how we drifted off into hate and white people are not knowing some of that comes up in your book, but these are major distinctions that I'm making in my definition. So now that I've emphasized those differences, my definition is that accurate? Does it exist? We want to make sure that we have that just for, if you don't agree, if you don't think it's accurate, that's great. You can get that in too. Sure. I, I mean, I think, I think if we're, if we're trying to figure out how to fix some of these problems, we have to break it down into the individual systems and how they interact. And are they a part of a global singular system? I don't know that I would go that far, but I think that these systems, there are multiple systems and they all interrelate. And when we talk about, health or education or poverty or criminal legal system, and they're all interconnected. And so understanding that is really, I think, the key to solving some of the problems. Much obliged, Mr. Fishman. And that's one thing I will request as we chat about fire on the levee and the death of Henry Glover. Uh, as I'm asking questions about the book and your involvement in this case for all these years, uh, if you can make sure that we get distinct, distinctive answers to the question, uh, I found that many times that's one of the ways that white people practice racism, white supremacy, even in this book, where they don't quite answer your question, being deceptive with words. So can we make sure that we get a distinct, clear answer to the questions, Mr. Fishman? 
doing my best. Okay, I'll prompt about that as we proceed, sir. Uh, let's see, to kind of give context for you before we get into your involvement with Henry Glover and Katrina, can you tell our listeners who is Martha? How does she relate to your life, sir? Martha was uh, the woman who cleaned our home when I was growing up. She was a black woman. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, briefly, she was the woman who worked in my house. What time, like, what, uh, I guess if you don't want to give your age, that's fine. But just what context years are we talking about when Martha worked in your house? Oh, I was young, I think, under, under 10. Under 10. And, like, is this... 80s, 70s, 90s, when time period? Man, now you're going to make me date myself. <laughs> this Sorry. Was, uh, this, was, this, was, this was the early 80s. Early 80s, okay. Wow. Uh, and, and I'm even noting for listeners, that's even important with regards to racism, white supremacy. Martha, we don't have a last name for Martha, just a first name? That's always how I knew her. Always how you knew her. That's rather common, right, having... Particularly, you said you were 10, did I get it right? About 10 years old or so? Maybe younger? Yeah, I think it was, I was less than, that was, I was less than 10. Less than 10, okay. Uh, but that's super, super, super common, and I mean like going all the way back plantation days, having young white children referring to black people that are old enough to be their parents or grandparents even sometime on a first name basis, yes? I mean, in, in fairness, in my community, we talk to people of all ages by their first names. I grew up, I grew up calling my parents' friends by their first names. I grew up calling uh, my my friends' grandparents by their first names. Um, you know, it varied from house to house. Certain certain traditions were more Mrs. This or even you know, um, Mama Ruth was what we called one of my friends' grandmothers. Um, so. I, I agree with you that historically that is true, but in my context, I think it was not totally unusual. Mama Ruth sounds quite a bit different from Martha. That's why I appreciate the context of you giving all of that. Okay. No, so- no. But what I'm saying, what I'm saying is there was there was a range. There mm-hmm. was a range from people who I called by their first name to the to the more formal is what I'm saying. Okay. And- I'll repeat what I just said. Mama Ruth sounds substantially different than Martha, who cleans her family. Right on. Um, Listen, I agree with you. Okay, right on, right on. Um, You already, since you kind of gave it to us, you said you're in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, my former stomping grounds, um, during the 1980s. Man, get to touch... All of our signature cases. What was our number one when we got back on the air? It was Wayne Williams. Were you perchance in Atlanta when all that was going on? Atlanta child murders? No, no, no. I was way too young to remember that. Okay. If you were there in the 80s, you would have been like 10 or so when all that was happening, right? You would have been young when that was here, when that was taking place? Yeah. I got to say, it was not on my radar in the 80s. Okay. Okay. Infamous case uh, in Atlanta, Georgia history, uh, important for many, many reasons, even some of the overlap for what we're talking about today. All right, trying to cover as much as we can with Henry Glover and Fire on the Levee. Um, I guess before we get to this book and all the great detail that you have here, uh, Pulp Fiction and all, Martha, that's in the book. I read details. 
Um, you, with your history in the courtroom and such, are you? can you think of a case? I'm not trying to stump you or anything. I'm just curious. I'm trying to ask anybody that I know connected to the legal profession. Can you think of a case where the defendant, they went to a grand jury, there was an indictment, true bail, bang. We're supposed to go to trial. Something happens between the indictment at the grand jury where there is no trial. Are you aware of that taking place? Any any case that you can think of just off the top of your head? Before indictment? There was an indictment, but the case never went to trial. There was an indictment, true bill indictment. You can indict a ham sandwich, as you say. So we do get the indictment. But the case never goes to trial, whatever takes place. And we never have a trial, even though there is an indictment at the grand jury. Sure. I mean, you could either have a plea agreement or you could dismiss the case in its entirety. Hmm. Okay. Without a plea agreement, that's that happens pretty where there's a dismissal after an indictment at the grand jury. Sure. Awesome. I'm so glad we got to talk to you. This came up with a different case, uh, the Duke Lacrosse case specifically, about a year ago where we were talking with an author. He said that they had an indictment, but this got dismissed with no plea. Like, that's a little odd. Like, they should have at least went to trial and all the rest of it. But, okay, you said that that's, they do have pleas and they have dismissals if things come yeah, out. It's not, mm-hmm. Go ahead. Right. I mean, it's, it's, I mean the, the burden of the proof of the prosecutor is to prove their case beyond reasonable doubt. And if they think at some point that they don't have that evidence, then they are ethically obligated to do it. Does that happen all the time? No. But it's well within the discretion and the power of a prosecutor to say, no, this case should not be going forward based on the evidence that we have. I got you. I got you. Did that ever happen in, in your career where you had to toss a case after you got the indictment at the trial for whatever reason? Oh, all the time. I mean, not 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 as a Fed. Not when I handled. Oh, people are coming in on cases that shouldn't be there. Yeah. It happened a lot in the domestic violence context, where we would have a case, the police would be called, it would be a case, and then ultimately, uh, the victim of the crime doesn't want to participate in the process. Until a case gets dismissed, or a witness isn't available, so the case gets dismissed. I see. That's happening every day in courtrooms across America. Thank you so much, Mr. Fishman. I'm still learning. That's why I always enjoy talking to people with expertise. Uh, Okay, so that I can let that one go. Not that unusual. Okay, ethically obligated, in fact, if there's something wrong with the case moving forward. Um, I guess I'm just asking this now because it is in the book, but I want to make sure I don't get sidetracked once we get off on Mr. Glover. In the book, you wrote that you worked on some sort of sex trafficking case in Guam. Uh, and I just caught my like, what in the, uh, what was this case about? Can you give us some details? Sure. This is a case um, out of Guam. Uh, there was a woman uh, it was known as Mama San, Sung Jia Cha, who ran a brothel on the island of Guam and was recruiting women from a nearby island called Chuk in Micronesia. And she was luring them to come into Guam with promises of well-paying jobs, uh, but once they got there, they were compelled into prostitution using a number of different 
schemes, including uh, coercion and force and locking them in and forcibly inebriating them. And ultimately, uh, she was prosecuted for for bringing in 10 different uh, young girls and young women into Guam. Crazy, crazy. Okay. Wow. That is, uh, wow. Caught my attention. I'm glad I asked. Okay. Uh, now we will get to Mr. Glover. Uh, in, in the early, in the early manuscript, I wrote more, but people told me it was too distracting. So good, good catch. Okay. I, hmm, I don't, uh, I mean, it should be distracting. Don't you think? I mean, that's horrendous. I mean, uh, wow. That, yeah, that, we talk about that sort of thing on a regular basis, child, uh, child abuse. And yeah, that's, that is distract. Yes, I would agree with them. It's distracting, but I would have yeah. appreciated no, that. I extra- mean, well, mm-hmm. I have more to write about, more to write about for the next book. I mean, the reality is that being a civil rights lawyer in America meant that I was doing things like looking into police abuse and going inside some of the worst police departments. It was dealing with this underbelly of forced labor in, in America that still exists. And it, it goes into to hate crimes and, and crimes that are committed because of bias that people hold against other people. And so I saw it, I saw it from a lot of different perspectives. But I wanted, I wanted this book to focus mostly on Henry Glover because I think the story of New Orleans speaks volumes to what's happening more broadly in America. I concur, Mr. Fishman, Henry Glover. Um, I get people should know this, but I do fear tragically that many people do not know this. Um, I learned about this case, I guess, the way that you did, Mr. A.C. Thompson, and then we were able to chat it up with him many, many years ago. Um, for people who you know never heard, no idea who Henry Glover is. How did you find out about this strange set of bones, charred bones, I might add, uh, dumped in the back of a car on the levee? Well, I got a file on my desk, and the file had two things. It had Henry Glover's autopsy, which, as you mentioned, um, were burned remains, not even a full skeletal remain. Uh, his skull was missing. And then the other thing that that file contained was A.C. Thompson's article. And... You've mentioned AC a lot, big fan of his work. A- AC uncovered that, um, that this man, Henry Glover, whose, whose remains I had seen, um, in that autopsy file had been found behind the levee and had done an investigation to try to understand what had happened on Henry Glover's last day. He came across Henry Glover's brother, Edward, um, King and William Tanner who was a man who lived nearby and was driving in the area. Uh, he's often referred to as the Good Samaritan because he stops and he picks up Edward and Henry Glover and another man, Bernard Calloway, and tries to get him help. So the article that AC had written had said those men are trying to get help. They arrive at a nearby school because uh, the Good Samaritan thinks they're going to find some medical supplies there. But instead, they get met by the SWAT team of New Orleans Police Department where the men are removed from the car and detained Henry Glover is left to burn out in the backseat of the car. During that time that they're there, they're beaten by the police. And sometime over the next two hours, a police officer drives away with the car with Henry Glover's body. And so A.C. Thompson's article said that's the last anyone knows about what happened to Henry Glover until his body is later recovered and that is burned. And suggested that if anyone was going to look into it, 
uh, they should start by looking into the police. A notoriously uh, corrupt police department, and you go into some of the nefarious history. Again, for listeners, if you've been with us, Dr. Leonard Moore, Black Rage in New Orleans. In fact, Mark Essex, we're going to go way back in the uh, Cal's archives. Lots of history with New Orleans and their history of uh, New Orleans police specifically uh, being accused of brutalizing black people. Um, specifically, you give so much, uh, what shall I say, great detail uh, about the shooting and kind of the attitude uh, of the folks. Uh, so I'm going to go straight to the officer, white officer, uh, who I was going to say allegedly, but I mean at this point. So the officer who shot and killed uh, Henry Glover, Officer Warren, who's at this, I guess you call it substation, second floor of this mall. You can get the details if I'm in error. But I just want to read this to kind of give an attitude of this officer who's here. And then I want you to speak specifically to one detail. So I'm <laughs> reading from the text here, Fire on the Levy, just published. The main thing that people knew about Officer Warren was his interest ordering on obsession with guns. A number of officers told us that in the days after Katrina, Warren, called, Warren carried a small arsenal around with him, offering up and passing around his personal rifles and shotguns to NOPD officers and National Guardsmen alike. His gun of choice for personal protection was his 223 caliber SIG, excuse me, 550 sniper rifle designed for precision shooting at long distances that Warren bought for $7,500. It was the gun that would end Henry's life. Before he ever became a police officer, Warren invested thousands of dollars and weeks of his time taking use of force classes at the Lethal Force Institute. I'm the alumnus there too. A training program once described by the Boston Phoenix Weekly as the seminar to take when you absolutely, positively need to kill someone tomorrow. Warren fired grenade launchers and Tommy guns and attended lectures on the limitations on legal force. He also studied at the Orleans Regional Security Institute, where he passed the NRA's National Instructor Program with perfect marks. He taught a class on the nomenclature of handguns. Are you flipping serious? His mentor at the Orleans Regional Security Institute suggested that Warren enter law enforcement as a way to put his gun expertise to practical use. This mentor told him that New Orleans needed well-educated officers. One thing was certain, Warren was a hell of a shot. He regularly participated in distance shooting competitions, firing at targets hundreds of yards away. When he graduated from the police academy, he received NOPD's Precision Shooter Award in recognition of his near-perfect 
scores, scores, scores. I will pause there. You were able to hold this weapon, this SIG 550, and show it to jurors two times through all of this. Just kind of for our listeners, I guess I'll start one. Why did you include all of this information about his gun obsession to kind of understand the Glover shooting? Because I think it is vital to understand our relationships with violence in America, um, particularly as we're seeing in some communities this just massive distortion around, around gun violence and how guns are used. If you are operating in a world of self-protection, you don't choose a gun like David Warren chose. The, Warren, the gun that David Warren chose was a sniper rifle designed to be fired at hundreds of, of feet, if not yards away. And so to me, that is hugely important to understand the psychology of a person who is operating under the power of law during Hurricane Katrina. Because I contrast him to others in the book who said, no, I've got a Glock. Oh, if I get into trouble, I'm going to call for backup and support. And, and what we see is a one-man vigilante show um, so I, I, I think it's important for, for viewers to be, uh, for, for readers to be able to make that distinction. Mostly, I think a lot of the people that I've come across is that just don't have a whole lot of familiarity with guns. And many people in this case did not have a lot of familiarity with guns. But I think when you look at that particular gun, it's significant. Hey, you are talking about me, uh, Mr. Fishman. I do not have a lot of film familiarity with guns. So... You gave this SIG 550, uh, and even for listeners, just to give a little bit more detail, you write, this is later on once we start getting to the trial uh, phase, uh, Mike Magner, one of your co-counsel the first time around, then asked Warren about the difference between the two types of ammunition he typically used, the 5.56 versus the 223. From what I understand, Warren explained the caliber itself is the same, meaning the bullet diameter is the same. The difference has to do with the operating pressure of the cartridge. I believe one is a military specification and the other is a civilian or sporting arms specification. On September 2nd, Warren chose the military round. I'm just adding to kill Henry Glover black male, shoot him in the back, no less. I didn't know anything about these weapons, these rounds, any of this. I looked online and just started watching some of the videos of people using this weapon. I was staggered. You held this weapon. I remember you even said that the jurors got an opportunity to hold this weapon, and some of them seemed so intimidated they didn't even want to touch it. Can you kind of help our our listeners who maybe aren't looking at it, maybe they can't go Google immediately, help them grasp what this military-grade weapon, what that experience is, even looking through the scope that you described. Can you kind of help them grasp? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it looks like the idealized silver weapon that, unfortunately, way too many kids' soldiers' toys. It's a, it's a small but rather substantially weighty um, gun, the scope that he had on it magnified the view so significantly 
that if you looked at someone at about 75 feet away, you were looking at body. And I remember the first time that I got my hands on it, we were standing at the FBI and we went to the longest hall in the building and you have someone standing all the way at the other end of the longest hall and it's like you're looking right at them. And so this gun is, is weighty. It is, it is not a gun that you turn to for, for quick, close-at-hand battle because it's just, it's just too heavy and it's not very maneuverable. And it's remarkably precise. I mean, one of the stories that I tell in the book was I had gone to Quantico to do some, some, some testing on the gun. And while we were there, the people at Quantico said, we have, we have a model of this gun. Do you want to shoot it so you know what it feels like? Um, one of my colleagues had never shot a gun in her life and gets instructed, gets shown how to hold the gun, and she fires and, and hits all five rounds in, in, a, in a really small area. And so for me, those experiences just drove home how unusual it is that this gun is even in conversation. How, how unusual it is that it's even... A lot of people during Hurricane Katrina were on the police force were carrying their personal weapons. Uh, there did not seem to be a policy one way or the other. There were people who thought that they were authorized to do it. There were people who didn't think they were. But the reality is, of all the people carrying their personal weapons, there weren't very many who were carrying the weapon uh, that David Warren had. Context of white supremacy, indeed. Uh, and even to the culture of everything that's happening at this point that I think is so important because we, how many years ago, 2009, so that's 14 years ago when we spoke with A.C. Thompson and he talked about some of the same points that you raised, that you had uh, officers in uniform, on duty, uh, with personal weapons. Uh, now, granted, as you said, not as, didn't see tons of folks with this type of a weapon, but is that what we're supposed to be using? Like, what is going on here? And beyond that, he said, Algiers Point, Donnell Harrington, he said that there were white yeah. people. They don't even have a badge. Same thing I say on the program, <laughs> race soldiers, badge or no. They don't even have authorization, badge, nothing. They just started going breaking into people's houses and taking their firearms. We're going to secure our neighborhood. You loot, we shoot. And Donnell Harrington, that was, you know, later in the book, but... I'm just touching on it now because we asked, hey, Mr. Thompson, did you hear reports about roving bands of black people going to get arms? And hey, we don't trust white people. We're going, any white person comes around here, you are in trouble. He said, no. Maybe you found something in the 14 years. Did you find roving bands of black people who were going to secure steel guns and putting down armed camps to keep out white people from their neighborhood? Did you find that? Not, not that I've heard of. Not that me neither. I said, matter of fact, A.C. Thompson even got more specific. He even pointed us to a documentary, Welcome to New Orleans. He said there were white people. This is in your book, too. That's why I said I'm just bringing up because it's beyond the police, broader issue of white culture, white supremacy, racism. There were white people, citizens, bragging about killing black people. Same thing you bring up in your book with the police department. People bragging about the death of Henry Clever. What in the world? Like, why would... A.C. Thompson said, white people who did not live in the state of Louisiana drove 
for the opportunity. I got my Sig Sauer too, just like Mr. Warren. I got my sniper scope. I am ready. I wish a looter would come in here and try to get a roll of toilet paper. That's what I remember we talked about in detail with A.C. Thompson in terms of speaking to a broader issue of white culture. Uh, Ken, did you make any of those observations? Did you... You worked on the case in Algiers Point, man. Am I being in error? Am I speaking in error? No, I mean, that's absolutely what was happening in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Mm. And in, in Algiers Point, we saw a group of, of, of neighbors who armed themselves and had said, if anyone comes into this neighborhood, we're going to secure a neighborhood. And they put barricades up, and sure enough, three black men, including Donnell Harrington, walk in to this neighborhood trying to find their way out of New Orleans, and they get beaten by, by shotguns and gunfire. Um, all three were wounded. Uh, Mr. Harrington got the worst of it, barely survived. Uh, and again, AC uncovered that story. And it was, it was one of those great relationships where AC brought stories to, to my office, and we investigated those. May 2009 came. We started at the cows like we knew what we were doing. I want to read a little bit more from Fire on the Levy. I'm just sharing from the Times Picayune about the Donnell Harrington case because I suspect a lot of people either forgot or didn't hear a whole lot about it in the first place. Um, they, the looter, I can't stress enough the amount of coverage and rumor and innuendo. You talk about this in the book, uh, Mr. Fishman. Uh, at that time, all of that basically was licensed to, yes, Mr. Warren, you need the military-grade ammunition. Yes, the looter, Negros, oh, and it's with Algiers Point, before I get to the Times article, just, he said in Algiers Point, they said, if you are darker than a brown paper bag, you will be shot. That, I thought, was fascinating as well. Am I, am I lying? Am I being truthful, uh, Mr. Fisherman, browner than a brown, brown paper bag? You're going to be shot at Algiers Point? That's what, he, that, that's what he said. That's what he said. The Times-Picayune, they reported the title, Post-Katrina Shooting in Algiers Point Warrants Federal Probe, Mr. Fisherman's and his folks. He was in that right there. Uh, but they write, two people linked former Algiers resident Roland Bourgeois. Am I saying it correctly? Is it Bourgeois? Is that it? Bourgeois. Bourgeois, okay. Bourgeois Jr. to the shooting in interviews with the Times Picayune, ProPublica, and PBS Frontline, examining a picture of Mr. Bourgeois. Mr. Harrington identified him as one of his attackers. Terry Benjamin, a former neighbor of Mr. Bourgeois, said she heard nearby shots September 1, 2005, that's the day before Mr. Glover was killed, and saw her then neighbor and other men celebrating that Mr. Bourgeois had shot a looter. Mr. Bourgeois declined to be interviewed. His mother, Pam Petre, said her son and another man fired at a black man that day. She said her son had faced three dangerous and arrogant African-American men who were trying to break into parked cars. I have never seen arrogant car things like I can't even, I can't even, uh, uppity, I lost my place with the, she acknowledged her son refers to black people as niggers, who doesn't, but she said he was not 
racially motivated in the shooting. She said the shots were meant only to scare and not to kill. Wow, so much I could say. You did work this case. Did did you have a follow-up that you wanted to add on this, not racially motivated? What do you think about that one, Mr. Fishman? Um, I mean, I think it was about as clear as you can get. I mean, it's, it's hard to breed these hate crimes because under the federal statute, the, the burden of proof is so high. And this one, this one made that burden of proof. Uh, it just seemed... That's that's entirely what was happening in that neighborhood. Is they were keeping people out who looked differently than them because of the color of their skin, and they were not afraid to resort to using violence to do it. And in this particular case, three three people were hit. Could have been killed easily. Um, yeah. I, again, think about this with all those power outages that have been happening across the U.S., and even the allegations that this might be the sort of thing that racist groups have been doing deliberately to provoke some sort of violence, to have repeats of this sort of thing. we got to, you know, stop the looters, can't let things descend into anarchy. Keep that in mind for your safety. Heard that word a few times already today. Uh, Context of white supremacy, again, discussing the brand new book, Fire on the levee. Uh, Jared Fishman, the author, hanging out with us. Uh, you write this a little bit later on in the text when you begin to kind of dig into the infamous New Orleans Police Department uh, doing a first interview with such a potentially important witness in a meeting hosted by the FBI field office field office's second in command who is not directly involved in our investigation struck me as a real old boys club way to do business, but I thought maybe that's just the way they do things in New Orleans. What do you mean in this instance here, Old Boys Club? I mean, it's clear it's clear that a lot of the players knew each other, and that they knew each other for a long time. And as I was an outsider, but I was an outsider operating with, with the power of being on the inside. And so one of the things that, that Ashley Johnson, who was the FBI agent that I worked with, and I are constantly, uh, we're constantly outsiders in search of trying to get the truth. But we have more access than anyone else would because we can bring these people together. And when I think what I meant was it, was it was just very clear that there was a closer relationship um, between the police and the FBI and that could potentially influence how an, how an investigation proceeded. Hmm. Much obliged for the clarification. When you talk about Ashley Johnson, when you all worked this case together, you're a white man. She's a black female. You said you all were, I guess, affectionately referred to as the black girl and the Jew. Is that correct? That was true. Fascinating. Mm. Mm. Uh, the was I'm even processing that this. Hmm. That for, I'm just I'm pondering on that. Words are important. Uh, we had Officer Warren. He does a whole course on the nomenclature of handguns. I would love to. Can I at least get the syllabus to that course? Like, what is what is that? Anyway, um, words are important, and I'm thinking, old oh boy, because it's kind of an, an oxymoron, right? Old boys club. Uh, they're calling your partner the black girl, but they got the old boy. It seems 
there should be a better term. Um, unjust networking. Something. Yeah, mm, good. I mean, that's that's always that's always how I heard it referred to growing up. They they, they you know well, grow, growing up you'd hear people talking about the old boys because and what they mean is these relationships that go back um, to to a point of, of white patriarchy. I mean that's that's where those power structures originated and they continue on in, in many places quite quite explicitly today. And so I don't know. That was that was the phrase that I had always heard used for it. If you got a better one, I'm happy. I'm happy to think about it for uh, for the paperback. <laughs> uh, what you just said, because uh, that's why I was, you know, hoping you could give me more details. What you were thinking when you wrote that out, if if because that's I've heard this phrase frequently myself, and most of the time I think it's a synonym for racism, white supremacy. It seems that's the way that they, people are using it when I hear this phrase. If that's what they mean, I think that would be way better than, oh, because now even we have a lot of white women who are in this too, and they're doing the same thing. And it's, I mean, if that's what we're talking about, racism, white supremacy, then it would be much better to say that than, oh, boy, that's again, oxy, oh, jumbo shrimp, old bolt, come on. Uh, let's see. You, uh, words this i love this and i appreciate you have a number of what shall i how shall i phrase it you have a number of points throughout the text where you keep you do keep things focused on mr glover for sure but you have a number of moments where you kind of reflect on your own involvement in this case as a white man and how people are looking at you and all of that especially down in new orleans with so many black people uh so you write <clears throat> ashley black female his partner and all this ashley and i flew to tulsa where he was temporarily living. This is Bernard Calloway, black male. He was one of the three uh, black males, or he was one of the black males. Yeah, I had it right the first time. He was with Mr. Glover. They're going to get him to try to get him help and everything. He ends up being beaten, and, you know, what can you do? Black male. So they're going to talk to Mr. Calloway, get his testimony on all this. Uh, it was hard. It was hand-to-mouth existence, working construction when he could find work, and sleeping on a co-worker's couch. Callaway was stocky and imposing and stared at me as if he were sizing me up. What was Im imposing about Mr. Callaway when you first met him? Uh, I mean, he was, he was about my size. He, he was very serious. And it was clear he didn't trust me. And so I, it, it felt intimidating being, being in that room initially. Mm. Do you think um, Mr. Calloway being a black male uh, and you being a white man, even though you're with um, a black female, <laughs> um, do you think you being a white man that that in some way may have uh, influenced him being suspicious of you? Uh, I don't know if it was me being a white male or if it was just the fact that he was a black male. Um, you know, as I write in the book, I think there is this very strong association between blackness and criminality that we see in all sorts of ways, particularly reinforced in our, in our film and, and on our nightly news and on anyone who follows anything about our criminal legal system. And so I think that exposure, absolutely, even me as a civil rights lawyer who was trying to figure out what happened, um, we're all, all of us have blind spots. And I think it is vital for people to be able to begin recognizing it. Um, and, and, and certainly I was open enough to the idea because as I sat down and talked to Bernard Calloway, 
um, it was clear that I had totally misjudged him. Hmm. Context of white supremacy. I just I paused so I could ask about the imposing comment. Uh, and even for listeners, we've been talking, it's been so many shootings, it's hard to keep track of them all. So the shooting in Nashville, uh, just a few weeks back now, Nashville, Tennessee, one of the victims, uh, Mike Hall, 60, I think he's 61 year old black male custodian. He was described as, uh, strapping. And I said, that is a descriptor that seems to be reserved for black males. I rarely hear someone described as strapping. Uh, I think stocky would be another one that I would probably, I don't know, just check how often you hear someone described as stocky or strapping. Um, continues. My assumptions are. I, I, I can think. I can think of examples, but you know, maybe maybe it's in the linguistic worlds that we that we run in. Um, but I'm with you. I think we. I think words matter, and I think when we do use words, we should try to be precise. Mm, I say that all the time. Be precise. Be precise. I'll have to, we'll have to see how often folks or who gets described as stocky and the same strapping as well. Picking up on the same paragraph, you say my assumptions about Callaway at the start of the conversation could be reduced to one ugly word. Thug. This had something to do with his size and chilly demeanor, but it was no doubt influenced by the darkness of his skin and the association of blackness and criminality served up daily by the news media and popular culture, the black man as criminal. Like I said, fascinating bit of uh, acknowledgement. I read that Norm even served up a lot of delectable Negro moments here. Um, and particularly with this case where a black male, unarmed black male who <laughs> can't even really say he was looting and all this at the time, I mean, by accounts, might have just been smoking a cigarette uh, and gets shot and killed. Uh, thug is another one. Like man, because I didn't hear Warren, or you know, I don't. That's enough. I don't really hear white people get described as thug. Do you hear white people get described as thugs? No, absolutely not. I mean, that's why that's why I put it in there because I think. Well, I'm not. You know, I don't know that I agree with you on strapping. Um, I do agree with you on thug. Absolutely. Listeners can think about all of these terms and when just pay attention to it now, you'll think about it. When it pops up the next time someone gets described as stocky or strapping, thug, I think is the boat has sailed on that one. Uh, in, when I read this, because there's so many, there's so many points in the book where you and or other individuals are talking about the way that black people are dehumanized in this manner and just talked about as, as criminals looters, thugs, whatever it happens to be, this ends up being a major way that white people practice racism in a variety. And we have tons of them here. This is how black people end up being kicked off of jurors. This is how black people end up being shot and killed as looters. This is how black people end up being shot and killed on dancing a bridge. Um, when white, even, even yourself, you describe this as a blind spot. This is why I say words are important. I think it's more accurate is this one of the ways that white people practice racism, white supremacy, where they view a dark-skinned black person, especially a dark-skinned black male, and they are immediately thought of, processed as looter, rapist, mugger, 
absolutely. I mean, it's why so many people are getting shot for ringing the wrong doorbells. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that is absolutely what's happening in America. That's absolutely what was happening with David Warren, in my, in my opinion. Um, and, and part of the reason why I wanted to bring out my own experience was I do not equate myself with David Warren. But those feelings transcend at all levels from the extreme um, to just people who are interacting with other people as they go out in the world. And I think being aware of that and putting, you know, calling it out is important. Context of white supremacy. Uh, we've talked to a number of folks about enforcement officers in West before, uh, especially killings of black males all throughout the world, in fact. Um, I'm thinking of Norm Stamper. He had one of the codes that he had was no human involved. Uh, if, so if a black male got shot or hit by a car or something like, oh, take your time. You know, if you're getting donuts, you know, keep eating. You don't need to rush. We'll, you know, we'll get to it when we get to it type of a thing. Um, for our listeners, what is the, and particularly for Henry Glover's case here, what is the significance of a Signal 21 report? The Signal 21s were a way that the police classified lesser events, things like a noise complaint or your neighbor trashing up your yard. Uh, they typically were not followed up by a detective, so they'd be written up by a patrol officer, which in the whole scheme of the rank of a police department is, is the lowest of, of the ranks. And, and they get filed away, and usually nothing ever happens to them, particularly in those days when everything wasn't digital, so it was hard to find stuff. So when Henry Glover, his uh, family members and such, uh, Patricia Glover's sister and, and everyone, they evacuate to Texas, it's unsafe. We get driven out of town, literally kind of skipping over some of the important aspects when Henry Glover shot and killed uh, Officer Warren, uh, his, uh, so we're Mr. Tanner, uh, Bernard Calloway, they try to get him to help. They take him to a school that the Havens, I think it's called, school where the police have, I guess, commandeered, if you want to call it that, uh, this school. They set up base camp here. They do not see, oh my goodness. Maybe they need help. Maybe even let's stop and see what's going on. Black males, ah, looters, stop. Now you do include in the book that they are being chased, so it does kind of give, maybe, you know, they've done something wrong in pursuit, but black males, ah, get out of here. They get beat down, handcuffed, all the rest of it. Um, and then they end up taking the vehicle, Officer McCray uh, and Officer, uh, I think it's Schoonerman, might be saying it correctly, uh, that they go and take Sherman. Sherman, thank you. They take the vehicle with Mr. Glover's body. Maybe he's deceased at this point, maybe not. They take it to the levee, set the vehicle on fire, burn it up with Mr. Glover's corpse still in the vehicle by some reports snickering as they run away from the levee. So we go back. Tanner, Good Samaritan, who's trying to help them in all of this. Mr. Calloway, Henry Glover's brother. They're still here, been beaten, called Negroes allegedly, and all the rest of it. Um, They get let go and are told leave, don't come back and you're going to die. That's part of the context as well of Bernard Calloway and him not wanting to talk about all of this like, man, they told me to leave New Orleans, don't come back or I'm going to die. And uh, Edward King as well, Mr. Glover's uh, brother in all of this. So we continue, they're trying to get details, what happened, all the rest of it. He just told us they give this a Signal 21 report where, eh, yeah, 
We'll get to it when we get to it. We got lots of problems. Things are going on there. Who cares about it? Pulp Fiction, no one will be missed. So we get through all of that. As he just said, hey, they didn't even have, it's not like we had all the HD high quality technology that we have now, some almost 20 years later. Keep that in mind as I read. You're right. The cops, particularly those from the 4th District and the SOD, whose respective compounds were only blocks away from the levee where Mr. Glover's body was found, charred, were all well aware of the body's presence. NOPD officers may or may not have known Henry's name, but they knew his case was unusual. Of the over 1,800 people who died after the storm, his was the only corpse that was burned. For the two weeks the remains lay uncollected, cops would stop by to snap pictures. For them, Henry had become something like a post-apocalyptic tourist attraction. The sheer volume of photographic evidence that came to light almost all of it by members of law enforcement was overwhelming. At the beginning of the investigation, the best I had hoped for was that we would locate the grainy photos that A.C. Thompson's police source showed him, but that were never published. Ultimately, however, we found photographic documentation of each phase of the violence committed against Henry, the shooting accepted, a crime timeline, as it were. We had photos taken shortly after Henry was shot, multiple sets of photographs taken during the roughly two hours that Henry's body, intact, body lay in the back seat of the Chevy. Then, thanks to the border protection officers, we had a handful of photos of the car in flames at the levee and of Henry's charred remains after the fire had burned out. And finally, during that two-week period when his remains sat at the levee, at least ten different law enforcement officers took, picture, took photos that wound up in our investigation. We had scores of photos, both digital and film. Especially remarkable considering that in 2005, few people had smartphones with built-in digital cameras. None of the photos we received were official photos from an official investigation. That last sentence I need to read again. Much of what I just read is important, but that last sentence. None of the photos we received were Official photos from an official investigation. That is staggering. Put that, since we're doing it right now, put that on Kobe Bryant. Did you happen to pay attention to the recent trial? I think it was a $30 million settlement for the L.A. sheriffs swapping pictures of Kobe Bryant's charred remains. Did you happen to catch that, Mr. Fishman? Uh, Fishman, sorry about that. No, I wasn't. I wasn't following that one. Don't need to be on. But go Lakers! That play today. Go Lakers! Go Lakers! But I brought that up every day that I could. Even Kobe Bryant. 
five-time NBA champion, Hall of Famer, Kobe Bryant. Just another Negro and the exact same behavior. And what I love about this, in addition to that last sentence where, hey, all of these HD digital photographs at a time when most people don't even have HD cameras, none of these are official photographs that you do the same thing that I did when I read this. Wow, I have seen this behavior before in white culture. You even write directly after all of that about the long history of lynching photographs. Is that what you thought about when you saw all this, Mr. Fisherman? These unofficial, as it were, photos? It's it, it, it's hard not to go there. I mean, the, the resonances are, are, are very strong. Mm. Did you, I mean, hey, you just doing my diligence. This chapter is tourist attraction. That's how the Kobe Bryant photographs became big news. L.A. Sheriff's officers were going to bars in Southern California and look at this one. Do you see this? Look how charged. <laughs> That's what they were doing. It sounds like the exact, how do they have all the, you got a whole timeline if I read it correctly. Why do they have all these unofficial photographs unless it's just to, got what he deserved. You shoot, you excuse me, you loot, we shoot. <laughs> Why, what do you, did anybody else come up with an explanation as to what they were doing with these photographs? I mean, I saw a lot of horrific photographs beyond just these. I mean, people were documenting the horrendous amount of human suffering after Hurricane Katrina. I mean, the ones that really got me, the people were just photographing people laying on the side of the street, sometimes be wrapped up in a rug with a sign. I mean, there's one that I write about. A man, a man standing there and just says, this man died here. There's others where people had been photographs of people who had been secured to, to lampposts when the waters were high. And then, you know, as the waters drop, you see people dangling from those posts. People were photographing just the horrendous amount of suffering, um, including this. And so when we met people who had taken photographs, there were there were many of those who were just documenting the destruction they saw. But then for sure, we also saw people who were treating it as trading cards. And I think, I think both of those things are disturbing. Hmm. Hmm. I'm acknowledging the truth of that but my mind immediately drifted back to the paragraph I just read from your text where you made sure to remind us out of the over 1,800 deaths that happened during Katrina and all the photos and images that I saw and I'm sure many people, if they were alive at that time, saw only one was charred. And truthfully, I might have missed it. I've only heard one that was missing a skull. That would make this one stand out. I'm sorry? The only one that I'm aware of. Hmm. That would make this trading card stand out from the other trading cards. And especially if the police are trading this trading card and they're accused of doing a shooting. Like, wow, there's not even an investigation, but they got the unofficial trading cards. What in the world? Uh, and even I'm obligated to add, 
they did stop, as you include, the U.S. Postal Service got involved in stopping the circulation of the lynching postcards, but it was with tremendous opposition. That's why I even include, going back to my definition of racism, dedication, that's not blind spots. When you have U.S. Postal Service members saying, stop this, and you have hundreds, thousands of white people say, no, we're going to continue doing this, where it takes a lot of effort, like, wow, that's not blind, that is dedication to white supremacy rate. And then, like I said, to see the same behavior, Kobe Bryant. Listeners, I know of a $30 million settlement, Kobe Bryant, swapping these photographs, and not just random citizens in L.A., the Sheriff's Department. Something did it progress? I just put a question mark on it. Progress? All right. Uh, let's see. Matter, let me pause even for a second because I just I'm still learning myself. During this whole time period, like the I guess this would be the aughts, two thousand aughts, uh, during Katrina, there was still a serial killer operating in New Orleans, targeting black males. Do you uh, do you remember Ronald J. Dominic? Uh, Mr. Fishman? No, I wasn't familiar with that one. I wasn't either. I only learned about him until last year, but uh, he has been convicted. What year? What year was that? He was arrested, I believe it was 2006. It was right after Katrina ended when he was arrested and ultimately convicted. But he had been in operation in the New Orleans and Halma area for about... 25 years. Uh, they have police records of wow. his arrest going back to the 1980s where he was targeting mostly black males, uh, young black males, stocky black males. I think that's the word they use. Uh, black males who were younger, uh, as she talked about in the book, for being arrested, but younger. Uh, he would go ask them to come to his residence for sexual intercourse that he would pay them, uh, and then he would end up raping them and killing them. Uh, that's it. This went on for about 25 years. They even many of the books, they speculate that he might have been able to cover some of his crimes with Katrina because, I mean, hey, you got Henry Glover <laughs> and all these other, eh, I don't know what happened. That's, and then police, uh, the attitude that they have, eh, signal 21, no big deal, <laughs> that sort of thing. But Ronald J. Dominic, for folks who do Katrina, you should pause because he was arrested in the midst of all this as well. Um, you, in moving forward with tourist attraction, I can't say that enough, uh, you, in the text, I was struck, Jesus is invoked, the name of Jesus is invoked in this text a total of eight times. There are a few times where it's uh, towards the end, some of the Glover family members talking about they would forgive these officers because Jesus would want them to forgive and that sort of thing. So that's what happens a few times uh, towards the end. But much of the time where it pops up, uh, it's talking about some of these white officers being compared to Jesus. And you even <laughs> remark on this uh, at one of the points here. Let me see if I can read one of the uh, past. Yes, let's see. Uh, you write. One of the attorneys, Albie Preston, I think the U.S. attorney, would make a deal with the devil if it accomplished their goal, but it wasn't enough that his client was a fall guy. He was positively Jesus-like. The people who were responsible for the death of Henry Glover have made Dave 
the patsy, keeping him under a lull of protection, saying, well, we're covering your back, where it is actually they're holding him out as the sacrificial lamb, just like Jesus. And Jesus was sacrificed for something that he didn't do. Dave is being crucified for something he didn't do. He did his job and he did it well. And this is the thanks he is getting. Of all the defense defenses I had foreseen, I had not imagined one claiming that someone else had actually killed Henry. I had not anticipated him alleging a grand conspiracy in which he was the victim. And I had certainly not expected him to be likened to Jesus. This promised to be a very interesting trial. Like I said, this is just maybe a few of the times because it pops up again where they have, what would Jeff Wynn do bracelets? Well, I said again, like, dang, is Jeff Wynn Jesus? Like, what? I'm, I'm stymied. The black people are thugs. And we have numerous white officers who are accused of participating either in killing an arm, unarmed black male or covering it up, lying about it. And they're likened to Jesus. Like what? I'm not even sure what to say. Uh, what? what uh, yeah, I mean, that's how people were talking. That's how people were talking about this case. And, and I think, you know, to me, it was why it was so important to write about this because so rarely, so rarely do we get to look behind the veil of what's happening. And, and with this particular investigation, uh, you know, Ashley and I and the different people that worked on our team with us interviewed hundreds of people and, and were able to, to have access to a lot of different people. And this is the way people were talking. And this is the way people were defending their actions. Okay. But my headset got disconnected. Are you hearing me okay, Mr. Fishman? I can now. Okay. Sorry about that. I got disconnected. I was I guess in my in my stupor or confusion about all of the confusions with Jesus. I, did you get to hear where I was reading the passages with the different references to Jesus? Yeah, yeah, no, I heard that. Okay, awesome, awesome. Uh, and where you even had to stop and comment on this in the text, like, dang, I cannot believe we have, it's not even just one. Numerous white officers are being compared to Jesus. And like I said, putting this in context where we've heard numerous black people have been referred to as thugs, Ooh, the whole city of black people, really thugs and, and looters and white officers, even some killer white officers are Jesus. There we go. Now I can get your response. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Hmm. That's, uh, I even have to stuff because they sold bracelets as well about all of this. Uh, <laughs> I, I generally invoke the term the religion of white supremacy racism uh, in talking about all of this because I feel that's freak war. It's not, I feel the evidence so consistently that's how things are structured. Even I would submit that's one where this was not accidental or a blind spot. I think this is consistently how white people, they are supposed to think. They are trained, conditioned. This is how you are supposed to feel about yourself. I am a Lord. We rule the planet, and these niggas are just here to serve us as gods of the planet, white men 
and white women. That's, that was a lot of the justification for slavery, which was enormous in New Orleans. Am I, am I making sense, Mr. Fisher, before I move forward? No, go for it. You're making, you're, you're making sense. No, I, I'm, I'm with you, I think. Okay, okay. Don't let me talk crazy or be inaccurate with the text or, or anything else in general, really. Uh, if folks have questions that they want to make sure they ask Mr. Uh, Fishman, brand new book, like I said, Fire on the Levy. This is one, it's not that long. If you are looking for summer reading, now I will concede this is not like sit out on the beach, have your pina colada, virgin, of course, and just have a grand old time. It is kind of depressing. Katrina, not the most fun in the summertime reading, even though that is a summer event. But I would think, hey, if you're looking for summer reading, if you have offspring, summer reading, this might be a good book to pull to the side, especially if they're young enough where they don't really know about Katrina. I guess since I'm talking about audience, did you have an intended audience in mind for who was supposed to read Fire on the Levy, Mr. Fishman? I had a lot of audiences on on my mind, which is why I think it was a challenging book for me to write. Um, part of why I find this story um, so important to be told is that I think it can reach different audiences than than most other cases. New Orleans is an interesting place, and I wanted to highlight that. I think the storm of Katrina and the suffering was was so unprecedented. And, and I worry, like you say, it could easily happen again. It could easily happen in cities across America. And it's precisely because of the things that you're talking about, the language of dehumanization, um, the, the blatant white supremacy, and then everything in between. And I think they're all contributing factors to why we should be afraid about this. Have you heard, I know the, the book literally, I'm not, for folks who are listening in, this book literally just came out days ago, not even a month ago, like literally uh, just came out right at the end of uh, April. So I, I was going to ask, like, have you, I don't know, has it even been out long enough? What, what has the feedback been in the first few days of, of the release of the text? You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of my friends who only reads, reads young adult fiction read it. She says, you know, I don't usually read books like this, but it is so disturbing that it brought her in. And then, you know, I've, I've had friends who are lawyers who read it. I have friends who are from New Orleans. I have people who are themselves depicted in the books. And, and their responses have been over, overwhelming in that, you know, they feel that I have painted a broader picture of just how bad it was at all levels. Um, than is typically put out in one spot. And from a vantage point, it doesn't often usually get told. Hmm. I would definitely agree there. Get to, I don't know how many folks from the prosecution team uh, from the federal case get to hop in and write a book about the whole years-long experience and, and having to do the trial all over again. Uh, have you have you heard from any of uh, Mr. Glover's family members? Uh, have have they given you any feedback? Yeah, I, mean, I talked to Henry's sister and I talked to Henry's mother quite frequently, um, and they've been positive uh, about it because I think for 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 Patrice in particular, the the case in the legal proceedings were just so destructive to her family, and she you know I think. She, she's struggling for, for something 
some sort of change to come out of it. Mm. Patricia Glover, that's uh, his older sister, if memory serves correctly. And uh, I heard so many, I heard so, we started the audio. We heard uh, Edward King, that's Henry Glover's brother, where he talked about the mental health impact that the murder of Mr. Glover had on him, where he talked about waking up at night and scaring his wife and uh, so many of his, I mean, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine, like, and then being threatened. Rather, he just get, he gets killed. He gets burned. Uh, Mr. Uh, King talked about that. He didn't even know that they weren't going to be able to have a funeral uh, for, you know, to at least do their last respects and all of that to his brother. And then, oh, no, you know, they burned the bodies. So we have to do closed casket and all of that. Him finding this out the day before and just, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. Um, is, I guess. I, can, can I, can I throw out someone else's book? Yes, because I just, I just learned of this book when I saw him last week, but it's called The Beast I Call Grief. And it's written by Anthony Scott. Anthony Scott is Walter Scott's brother. Walter was wow. murdered by North Charleston police officers. Uh, and I got to know Anthony through that case. And Anthony just recently wrote a short memoir really just talking about his battle with the trauma of, of, of having a sibling um, gunned down by the police. And mm. as he says, you know, watch that video a thousand times. And wow. the, book, the, the book is, I mean, he, he's a poet and a philosopher and a wonderful, wonderful human. Um, definitely worth the read to, to get some insight on, on the impact of that trauma. What's the title of his book again, sir? The Beast I Call Grief. Mm. Mm. Wow. You can get it on Amazon. Will do. The Beast I Call Grief. Oh, that was May. That was, I think that was May. I think that I'll have to go back and see if my memory is accurate, but I think that was May of 2015 when Walter Scott was killed. I think that was about 30 days or so before Dylan Storm Roof and... I've mentioned Edward King. I see the folks who doubt and even some of our folks in Louisiana to make sure that they uh, are able to get their questions in. But uh, just that the Jesus, so many different white people get referred to as white enforcement officers who participated in this killing and burning of Henry Glover's remains uh, are likened to Jesus and white victims in all of this. I mean, the gall. Uh, not just that contrast with thug comes up in the book and the rest of it, but the totality, because it's a bunch of terms, even dirty in your text. The only individuals who get referred to as dirty in your text are black people. It's dirtying up black witnesses. Uh, in fact, Edward King, they don't even call him by his name in the trial. The uh, defense attorney, that dirty, was out with Mr. Glover. And I guess his nickname is Dirty Red, but they dropped the red, too, to just start calling Edward King dirty over and over in the courtroom. Uh, no white people are referred to as dirty. Individuals who are white, they will get described in the police department like Mr. McCray as doing dirty work, but they are not described as dirty. I guess even for full context, can you describe this moment in the courtroom that I just kind of glossed over where Edward King, who was with his brother, Henry Glover, the day he gets shot and killed, we're not calling him Mr. King. He is dirty in a court of law. 
Yeah, I mean, the Edwards' nickname was Dirty Red, as you said, and uh, it was it was clearly the the tactic of the defense was was to make Edward and by you know by extension Henry dirty, exactly as you said, and and during the cross examination they they keep referring to him as dirty um, until Patrice Glover finally answers the question and says, you know, no, he has a name. His name is Edward Kane. Um, Even that, like he talked about the trauma that the Glover family endured going through the entire trap, got to sit there through all of this. Don't <laughs> your brother being criminalized and whole family being criminalized, and we got to go back and dig up his criminal record, talking about Mr. Glover from 10, 15 years ago, and talk about what a no-count person he is, that he probably deserved all of this. And then the living family, we can't even call did they do this? Have you seen this procedure with white witnesses where they were not even going to call them by their actual name? We're going to get some nickname, much less a nickname like Dirty? Oh, yeah. I mean, not, not as frequently as this, and it was obvious as this. I mean, you see, you see it within, within uh, Hispanic communities and, and particularly how, how they get attacked. Uh, in, in lower-income white, uh, there's the white trash component to it. Um, yeah, is it anything like what we're talking about here? No, but I think we see these trends across, um, really where people are othered. Othered, that's another one of those fascinating terms. Okay. Uh, I do see that folks, uh, dialed in. I'm so glad we've been talking about that word dirty. And even Mr. Fuller has it in the word God saying not to use for those very reasons that typically will be used as a means of practicing white supremacy racism. I'm so glad. Oh, I'm not glad. Retract. Not glad. Uh, I appreciate Patricia Glover uh, having the self-respect. Uh, and I appreciate the detail you included in the book uh, for his family members being nervous and it's intimidating. you got to go in there and talk to these white people in, in the court of law and try and get some measure of justice. I put small J justice on that for their family member. Uh, but to stand up to them and, hey, his name is Edward King, not Dirty. That's an embarrassment that I even have to say that in the court of law, but okay. Uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in, uh, I guess I, if I would do privilege, I'll go to our caller in Louisiana who uh, I think survived Katrina and lived to tell about him and all of that. Uh, Ivory in Louisiana, did you have a question for our guest author, Jared Fishman, fire on the levy? Did you have a question, Ivory? Good evening. Hotep Dustin, um, greetings to the guests on the show. I did have a couple questions because there were so many things that I had heard um, after afterward. I'm, I'm interested to find out, and I did come just a tad bit late, but in your investigations, where was the National Guard during these murders? I don't believe the National Guard had arrived yet, and I could I could be wrong. They could have arrived and been on the other side of the river, but they certainly were not in Algiers. So the neighborhood where where Henry Glover lived is called Algiers, and it's also known as um, the West Bank because the Mississippi River divides the city. And so on on the West Bank, where where Henry Glover was, it hadn't flooded. 
So it's a part of the city that gets cut off from the rest of the city. But places like the Lower Ninth Ward down in, in Central City, those places are all underwater. Uh, that's where the National Guard responded first. Um, and so I don't recall the exact date, but certainly by the date that Henry Glover was killed, they were not in Algiers. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm familiar with what you're talking about, um, cause I was born and raised in New Orleans, um, so, which is why I'm also asking where the National Guard was, not that you have to answer it again, but considering that, um, there, there was plenty, I put it this way, it, it was a well-known thing to be, be prepared for hurricanes and, you know, following disaster after. So I, in my mind, my logic dictates that the National Guard would be at the ready, you know, in on both sides of the river. Okay, so then my next question is, from your um, investigations, is it true that most of NOPD were being hauled up in Harris Casino at the foot of Canal? Uh, I don't think most of it. I mean, at, at, at some point, at some point, that's where the command center shifted. But I don't know which, you know, at what point in time you're talking about. I would think during during the storm, once it made landfall, and after. Uh, I know they're in Harrow's Casino immediately after. And they're also, um, I'm blanking right now, there's another hotel in the French Quarter where they were based out of. Okay. And just out of curiosity, um, Jefferson Parish police, they, they didn't try, from your investigations, didn't try to contribute any uh, to, you know, uh, monitoring or surveying, you know, just, just keeping, keeping order, you know, in other words, <laughs> doing things to prevent, uh, vigilante activity on, uh, in Algiers, because obviously you know this because of your investigations part of, after a while the West Bank becomes Jeff, uh, West Jeff. So did they right. do anything right. or no. they just wasn't present at all? I mean, they, they, there was definitely communications between the two, but it, it seemed that people were, st were, were staying on their own turf. Okay, well, that was all the questions I had, and thank you for answering. Thank you for calling. Much obliged, Irie in Louisiana. Let's see. Our caller, Lauren, Pacific Northwest. Did you have a question for Mr. Fishman? Um, yes, sir, I do. Mr. Fishman, do you think it makes white people nervous to interact with black people, especially males that conduct themselves in a serious manner? Absolutely. Does it make you nervous? Does it make me nervous to do what? Same thing, to interact with black people, especially males that conduct themselves in a serious manner. No. No, but certainly certainly, I think I felt more that way earlier in my career. 
Okay, thank you, sir. Wow, fascinating, fascinating. Uh, let's see, what would what would make white people nervous about black males conducting themselves in a serious manner? What would make white people act nervous? I'm just telling you that that happens. Oh, right. Just saying, what would, what do you think is, is going on there? What do you think would, would motivate some sort of discomfort? Well, I, I, I think the things that we talked about earlier. I think the things that we talked about, how there's that association with criminality and whether it's, whether it's explicit or implicit or whether or not people are actively thinking about it or not. Um, it's absolutely happening. Mm. Fascinating. Uh, let's see. I call her 2262. 2262. Did you have a question for Mr. Fishman? Yes, sir. Thanks for taking my call. Um, Can you hear it clearly? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Fishman, thank you for joining us. Um, I had a question about your, I guess, would you call her your maid or servant when uh, the black female Marie, Mary, I believe? Martha. Martha, I'm sorry. Um, Martha, what, what would you, was she just some help or how would you describe her position? Well, she came over to our house, I don't know, two days, two afternoons a week and cleaned the house. We paid her for her. As I said, she's the woman who cleaned our house. Okay. Um, By chance, would you know if she was uh, older or younger? Like, how old would you say she was? I think she was in her, her early 50s when I knew her. Did she work for your family prior to you um, being around, or was this someone who just joined working for your family? What are you talking about, historically? Uh, did she work for your family long before? Uh, you say she worked for your family when you were a child. Was she working for your family before you were born, or this was someone who came around when you were? No, no. This was this this was someone who came into my parents' life once they had kids. Okay, okay, all right. Um, uh, you practice law, am I correct, Mr. Christian? Uh, used to. Used to. Okay. Um, what advice can you give us that most people don't know? Most black people don't know but fall victim to very frequently in the courts besides uh, not to self-incriminate or to get legal representation, something that you can tell us that most black people fall victim to that we, uh, that most people don't know. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is that people are forced to make really major decisions with a lack of information. Um, I think you don't want to be caught up in the system because the system is very unforgiving. And 
the you know what what is unfortunate is many people don't get to make that choice because of where they live because of targeted enforcement in this country and i think it's it's vital to know where you live and what the local circumstances are because policing is very local and the interaction between the police and whatever community you're in is going to vary greatly often because of history and so understanding the historic relationship between the police in your community, um, that's probably where I would start. Okay, I'm going to repeat the question. Mainly in the courts, not necessarily you know, getting inter uh, interacting with law enforcement, but with the courts specifically once you're in the courtroom, legal well, procedure. And in what context? Are you can are you arrested? Are you charged with something? What are you a witness? If you're being accused of uh, a set crime, yeah, I don't know that I would have any other advice than you want to have good counsel. Okay, okay, that's it for me, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Much obliged. Let's see, our caller in New Jersey. Uh, oh, I got to get this one in in case lightning strikes or something. We're talking about the courtroom. We had a non-white person. She dialed in to our program, Mr. Fisherman, and she was fussing at us. Well, not fussing at us, kind of fussing at black people and saying that uh, black people could at least do a better job participating on juries. And I just kind of put an asterisk there, talked about that later. Going through reading your book, wow, you have so much detailed information about black people being deliberately excluded from juries. This is one great nugget. I wanted to make sure I get the words once again. Uh, I fell out laughing, but this is so serious because, I mean, people go to jail and, you know, all kind of Anthony Broadwater. You write, two defense attorneys put forward unconvincing justifications for their strikes of black jurors. Then Frank DeSalvo, typically the best of the bunch on his feet, stepped in to try to save the day. I did not like his demeanor. Not just what he said, the way he said it. Quite frankly, I think the description we gave him was... He appeared like a hipster, and we didn't think he should be on the jury. What is a hipster? Afrique asked, seeming truly confused, as am I. Just a guy that's a cool cat or something. What? My first, my first thought was, did he really just say cool cat? What I should have said was, I think that is just code word for black. I would agree. Uh, the defense made more half-hearted efforts to justify the strikes. It wasn't much of a performance, but most of the time, this sort of lawyerly prevarication passes muster in courts all over America, not just in the South. 
the parentheses, a few years ago, a video surfaced from a district attorney's office in Philadelphia training prosecutors to use coded language about demeanor to circumvent Batson. That is so important. Brotherly love, 76ers, they train white people. This is how you circumvent the laws that are supposed to counter racism. This is how you get around that to boot Negroes out of the jury box. Did I read this correctly, Mr. Fishman? You read that correctly. Okay. Can you speak to broader context of why this is super important? Why this is super important is if you want to have a justice system and a jury pool that functions based on and is representative of the community, then you need people from a wide variety of communities. If we're going to actually use our system to try to get justice for people who are victims, to try to actually get it to serve um, communities that are traumatized by violence, then you've got to have those people on the jury. But because of the way the Supreme Court has, has allowed for jury selection, it's, it's virtually impossible to, to prove it. And what I think was so unique about the Glover case, and it's in some ways uh, among people I know somewhat legendary because it's so absolutely rare, um, but the judge reseated three black jurors. And I don't think I can underscore just how uncommon that is. That's what I mean about this is not blind spot. If you have white attorneys who are trained, this is how you get rid of black jurors. Because I didn't hear details of this is how you get rid of LGBTQ jurors or anything else. It was this is how you get rid of black jurors. That's not blind spot. That is we are very informed about how to practice racism, white supremacy. This is law, but I submit there are lots of programs about this. This is how you do it in a refined manner so that they don't even know, oh, yeah, we're practicing racism. They just think demeanor. He's a, what is, he's a hipster, a cool cat. And even even that, you say that in a courtroom, you should. It should have been a sanction. Like, what's supposed to happen if you, you know, get in trouble for violating Batson? Do you get sanctioned as an attorney? What's supposed to happen? There's, there's no rule. <laughs> there, there is no guidance on what's supposed to happen to you. And so it really, it, the, the remedy, if it, uh, you know, as you are, is, is so, so weak and varied uh, to basically be meaningless. No punishments for practicing racism, white supremacy. Echo, echo, echo. That's another one of those that I point at that suggests, man, white people enjoy, just like those trading cards, Kobe Bryant, Henry Glover, Emmett Till, enjoy practicing racism, white supremacy. I was saying, you say in a courtroom, he's a hipster. You got to get him off the jury. I suspect that has worked before, to even say that, you know. He's like a cool cat. All right. <laughs> Your excuse. <laughs> if we, don't, we can't have cool cat hipsters on the, on the jury pool. Get on out of here. <laughs> like, wow. 
Uh, let's see. Victim in New Jersey, did you have a question for Jared Fishman, author of Fire on the Levy? Uh, yes, yes. Let me just get to a quiet place. Um, and, uh, good evening. Um, I just have a question. Um, and Gus alluded to the uh, blind spot. So when you say everybody has a blind spot, do you mean that everybody has a bias? No, I mean everyone has things that they're not seeing because of because of where we grow up. We're all exposed to a limited amount of ideas just by virtue of, of where anyone is. And I think I think acknowledging that each of us have that is super important when we're having the conversation about about this. Because on top of that, there are there are people deliberately trying to build that up. And how do we how do we intentionally make those blind spots worse? Exclude people, criminalize people. What I'm saying is, okay. what I'm saying is, it, it happens. It happens across a spectrum, and they're all important. Um, in your profession, do you do you work with a, you know, um, do you ha- work with a number of black people? Yes. Okay. So, a loop, uh, uh, going back to the blonde spot. So if somebody in a profession works with um, respectable black people, and I'm, I'm assuming that other white people works also with other respectable black people, then how do some white people, having that experience, still come to the conclusion that all black people are criminal, or when they're in the presence of black people, they think criminal, if we're dealing with blind spots and not being exposed to certain things? Well, I'm not saying that it happens all the time in every interaction. Some, some are more obvious than others. And, and they happen in any interaction. But what we're talking about, a range, you know, a range from could be a sense and misunderstanding to the extreme, which is hunting someone down because of their race. Okay, my next question. Are you familiar with the... Um the lynching bill that was passed? I think it was, uh, it was named after Emmett Till? Vaguely. Okay. I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm a little out of date. Okay. Um, would you classify what happened to the victims in New Orleans? Could that be classified as a lynching? Your thing? Possibly. Yeah, I mean, possibly. I'd have to, I'd have to look at the statute. Okay, okay. Because I, if you had knowledge of that bill, I was wondering, you know, how could that be enforced when you're dealing with law enforcement and um, white people who deputize themselves as um, vigilantes? So um, hopefully yeah. we'll look into that bill. Hopefully. Thanks a lot. Talked about that bill quite a bit over the last year. Can't believe it's been a year since they've had that. Uh, our caller, truck driver in Houston, lots of the refugees from uh, Katrina went to Houston and other parts of Texas. Uh, truck driver in Houston, did you have a question for Jared Fishman? Yes, sir. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Hello? 
okay. Yeah, I would be one of those people that would had to move from New Orleans to Houston because of Katrina. Um, my question is, were a lot of those police murders, like, um, placed on um, crime that was happening in specific areas of the city? Of, of like, rival, like, you know, um, I guess, like, turf wars that were going on at the time? Not, not that I've seen evidence of. I mean, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me. There are so many things that we have not learned yet about Katrina. So, you know, I, I think, I think we will actually learn even more disturbing things at, as a result of this book coming out because, because so much of it has been hidden for so long. Wow. Well, that took, that took away um, the second part of my question because I was going to ask that if that was the case, then what role did the media play um, on the surrounding crime at the time, you know, due to these murders that was happening by the police um, in those specific areas? But um, well, a lot of them weren't covered at all. I mean, a lot of, a lot of those murders weren't uncovered until... A.C. Thompson got on the scene in 2009, 2010. He was still, he was still uncovering stories uh, of, people, of people who were killed and no one knew what happened to them. That would be my only question, but that's amazing for it to be this long and it's still evidence that, that still, you know, that hasn't came up yet. Wow. Thank you for taking my question, sir. Hmm. I was befuddled again, not quite as bad with the headphones and my Jesus question, but I truck driver in Houston has been dialed in for some time. I think that today was the first time I became aware, like, oh, wow, to evacuate from Katrina, like, oh, my goodness, that is, man. Uh, our caller, uh, 1159, 1159, did you have a question for Mr. Fishman? Greetings, greetings. Gus and greetings to the host, I mean to the um, Mr. Fishman and to the callers and listeners. Mr. Um, Fishman, um, from your observation, would you um, say that uh, most white people view um, non-white people, especially black people, as um, dirty? Would I say most people feel that way? Most white people. No, I don't think that most people feel that way. Um, would you say that uh, most white people um, view black people as um, criminals? I think many people do, and I think sometimes it's explicit in their mind, but I think even more often than not, it's, it's subliminal. And would you say that that comes from them being um, trained by the system to black people as criminals? Yeah, I think it's a byproduct of a lot of different in cultural and educational influences. Would you say that uh, white children also feel the same way about black people seeing us as criminals? Listen, I haven't been to every part of America, and I know that communities respond quite differently. So 
I can only I can only speak to, to what I've seen and and I think it very much does exist in our country. And I've seen it you know, I've seen it at varying degrees of 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 how explicit it is and how thoughtful it is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for taking my call. Much obliged. I think we nabbed all the folks who had their uh, questions. Uh, I guess before Mr. Fishman uh, departs, you described there were two trials here for people who this is their first time hearing about Mr. Glover and Mr. Fishman's work in fire on the levee. There were two trials. They ended up uh, deciding that there had been, I guess, errors uh, in the trial, and they ended up having a retrial uh, for, I think, it was two of the different officers uh, in this case. Uh, even the officer who was accused of doing the shooting, uh, they won. They ended up doing a re retrial for this officer. Uh, I was painfully reminded of Danzinger Bridge, uh, where they got a conviction and then came back and took it back. Uh, that's whole another aspect of the system of white supremacy racism. Uh, I felt painfully as I was reading the book because I don't think I was aware of Mr. Fisherman like, oh, this was another one, just like Danziger where they did the gotcha. You thought you got a conviction in ha ha no you like uh man, I can't even imagine for Mr for Mr. Glover, um and excuse me, for his family going through all of this and thinking that one, thinking that all oh, this is done, then you gotta go back and do all this again, come back and testify sit around and wait for all these days. What are they going to decide? And then it's, oh, no, we're not going to convict him. Oh, and then they didn't even get, oh, my gosh. I guess just for context, when they go back to do this trial again for Mr. Warren, this white man who brings his personal weapon in to shoot a black male in the back while it could be that he was smoking a cigarette, they decide the jury cannot be told that, oh, yeah, in addition to killing this black male, shooting him in the black, we didn't set the body on fire. What was the rationale as to why the white judge decided that Matt can't give that to the jury this time? And the, ra the rationale was that um, when, when Warren, Warren had suggested that he should not be tried alongside the people, who had burned Henry Glover's body because there was no evidence suggested that he knew that's what was going to happen. Uh, and, and there wasn't evidence that was uncovered that he knew that's what was going to happen. But we knew that the police officers had burned the body. And so we said, of course you've got to know what happens next. Of course you've got to know um, what the circumstances were. And the judge found it too prejudicial to that it would be too likely that jurors would be swayed by emotion um, rather than judging on the facts. If I remember correct, one of the uh, jurors, when they found out about, oh, wow, they burned this corpse, they ended up vomiting in the courtroom. This is after the verdict, not guilty and all that, after they found out this information. They ended up vomiting in the courtroom. Is my, am I correct on that? Yeah. Mm. Justice, small J. Uh, I guess before you depart us, you, you also include uh, David Warren 
this SIG 550 military ammunition, he had his five young children in the courtroom whole time. This is the first time around, at least. And they're putting up these really gruesome photos. I don't know. Might be a better word. Macabre photos of Henry Glover's remains, charred remains, and all the rest of it. And his children are sitting right there. Now, I totally get, uh, you know, it's dad. We want to support, you know, mom is here, blah, 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 and all that. But, like, they're sitting here, and we've got this on the overhead, huge, blown up, and they're watching this. And you included this in the book. What, what are your thoughts having some years now to reflect on that? I mean, I think it speaks for itself. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine putting one's children through that under any circumstance. And so... Draw, draw the conclusions you want from there. Hmm. Did you think at the end that you had too much uh, empathy for Officer McCray after you go and hear about, you know, his family issues and his wife passing away while he's serving out his sentence? I don't know. Did you think I had too much empathy? <laughs> Mm. I would say that seems like one of those where if you have to ask, that might answer the question. I'd put, I'd put it this way. Do you think if Mr. McRae had been a black male, do you think you would have, you know, had some of these thoughts and, dang, you know, he missed out on being around his family and being a father, and do you think you would have had those same sort of thoughts that this was a black male, dark skin, dark complexion, Absolutely. I've met those, I've met those people. I've, I've seen, I've seen what the system has done to those people and it has destroyed them. So, I mean, to answer your question, yeah, I've met a lot of people over the years. Hmm. Not a whole lot of enforcement officers in the position of Mr. McRae. I mean, that's part of the problem, <laughs> having all these white people in. So, I mean, yeah, it would certainly not be, particularly a black person who did shoot and kill a white person, admitted this, seems like this was a wrongful shooting, got convicted, and they got their conviction vacated. You got to do it again. And then they get it right, and I get the whole, like, I don't think you've met a whole lot of black people like that, have you? Uh, I have not met a whole lot of police officers who've killed other civilians, if that's what you're asking. Okay. Context is certainly uh, important. No, no, I think it's absolutely important, because I think what is at the heart of this problem is, you're right, it is deeply baked inside the system. But it's... It's deeply baked inside the system. Hmm. That is a metaphor I hear frequently, delectable Negro. I guess before it, you mentioned Pulp Fiction in the book, I've talked about that film for years, put a little Harvey Weinstein sauce on that one. You mentioned uh, McCray kind of giggles and said, you didn't know my nickname was the wolf. 
uh, like Pulp Fiction, guy who cleans things up. I thought that was so significant. Context again, the wolf, I think that's Harvey Keitel. My memory might be bad. Don't, you know, hold me to that one. Uh, but the wolf's character, what they're cleaning up is a dead black male. And it's not just a dead black male. It is an unarmed black male. John Travolta blows his head off and they literally stuff him in the trunk of a vehicle and dump him in the junkyard. That's how, that is, that's the climax of Pulp Fiction where John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson squabble over cleaning a dead nigger's skull. I did think that that context for that film where Officer McCray says, I'm the wolf for this. Wow. Did you, you saw Pulp Fiction, uh, Mr. Fishman? Yes, I've seen Pulp Fiction. Okay. That's what I just said. That that's how it ends, right? They stuff the black. What is it? Uh, Joe's Monster Joe's truck and tow. Nobody who will be missed. I've quoted that line for years and years. Nobody who will be missed. That's what they said about Henry Glover, right? Signal twenty one. That that would be my recommendation. If he says I'm the wolf, make sure that they know. That's what Pulp Fiction is about. That was the film of the 90s, stuffing a black male like Henry Glover in the trunk. Nobody will be missed. Just for context. The book has been uh, the fi- or fire on the levee. Henry Glover, if you do not know about Henry Glover, shot and killed September 2nd, 2005. <laughs> set on fire and dumped like garbage in OPD's finest. This would be a great cat. Like I said, I don't know if this is summer reading per se. It is kind of grim, but you should know about this. You have any connections to Louisiana, Katrina, any of that, or if you just, you didn't know about Henry Glover. You just thought it was a lot of looters down in Louisiana. Check out Jared Fisherman, Fire on the Levee. Much obliged for hanging out, letting us ask a few questions this Monday evening, Mr. Fishman. I learned a lot from, I thought I knew quite a bit about this case, but I learned a lot from your book, sir. All right, well, thanks for reading. For sure, for sure. Jared Fishman, author, former attorney, working uh, with the U.S. Civil Rights Department. Thank you so much. Best of luck. I guess you'll be out doing the tours and all of that. Have fun. Hope you get lots of great questions. And uh, people will check out, learn about Henry Glover. Learn about Henry Glover. That's what I would say. Thank you again, Mr. Fishman. Right, take care. Have a good night. Thank you, sir. Context of white supremacy. Henry Glover. I'm so... Man, like, I guess that's stand by your work. We got Irie right here, and I totally agree with what she said. No bragging. Nothing to brag about. But, man, I will stand by my work. I am so glad we came out of the gates, meaning when the cows came back on the air 2009, we had A.C. Thompson on the program in May. We got on the air in February, the end of February, Within, what is that, three months, 
I even I remember how I found out about AC Thompson. It was a black female. We were standing in front of the University of Washington Library talking about counter racism. And I was saying, Oh, I think I'm gonna be able to get the program back together and may have some guests on. She said, Oh, you should try to get there's this guy, he wrote this article about white vigilante violence during Katrina. And I said, What? I bet what are you talking about? And she said they were going to killing black people. Now I had seen when the levy broke so I knew about Donnell Harrington. He's there. He did uh, an interview how he was shot in Algiers Point. Jared Fishman worked that. He told us some information about that. That's another one. That's such a disgrace that's in this book. The white guy, I read the report where they said it was uppity black people came through here. They were trying to rob and loot. So we, you know, we shot, shot Donnell Harrington and two other black males. That case, uh, the white terrorist, white man, I think it's Roger Bourgeois, He's oh man, I've got medical issues. He's with cirrhosis of the liver. Like, are you serious? You've killed black people, shot black people, and now you drunk all the brews in the world and say, oh, I got cirrhosis of the liver. I can't, you know, go to trial. And they sympathize. I think they delay the trial indefinitely. I think that's how he words it in the book. Delay the trial indefinitely. He finally gets convicted, and I think literally he serves like three days and dies. Like, I kid you not. Like, it's, I mean, indefinite, like, at minimum, at minimum, I don't care how sick you are, whatever it is, you will hang out for your last seven years, five years, or whatever, in jail. Because they do that to lots of Negroes. But I remember learning about all of this, uh, 2009, black female, we had constructive dialogue about racism, and she shared A.C. Thompson's report. That's one, if I can share quickly. I appreciate A.C. Thompson's reporting on the white terrorism during Hurricane Katrina. It is very possible this book would not exist without A.C. Thompson. He said, very beginning of the program, that's where he started that with this case. The PBS documentary probably wouldn't exist without A.C. Thompson. And for real, because of the people that he went and talked to and everything else, it probably would have taken a white person, A.C. Thompson, to do this. That documentary I mentioned, Welcome to New Orleans, there are white people bragging about shooting and killing black people and eating barbecue while they do it. It would take a white person to get that sort of, you know, investigation, information. I'm so glad uh, I was able to uh, get Mr. Thompson on the program way back then, even though I will say he has done a lot of work over the years since the Katrina reporting. That's like over a decade ago. He did report on January 6th and other incidents of white terrorism over that time. I said consistently, hey, man, what does Dr. Welsing say? Connect the dots. This is what it means to be white. This shouldn't be reported as separate incidents. January 6th is Hurricane Katrina and white vigilante violence. Go get guns. I'm mad. Law doesn't matter. In fact, we make the law to see that. And I keep saying those power outages. 
that would be the exact same sort of environment as Hurricane Katrina. It's no lights. Maybe the police get here. Maybe they don't. Fend for yourself type of a thing. You should know that what I said, what A.C. Thompson reported, white people who didn't even live in Louisiana. This is not, oh, we stay in Baton Rouge. We're going to come down and help our brothers. No, no, we live in Iowa, North Dakota, Vermont. But I got my SIG 550, sniper scope and everything. I'm looking forward for the chance to shoot a Negro. All you got to do is say it was a looter. 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 You shoot, we loot. Excuse me. You loot. We shoot, mess that up twice. You loot, we shoot. Make jingles out of it. See, they got racism. Enjoy practicing racism. Study Katrina, man. I can't say it enough. It's not a valid excuse to say it's sad. It's going to make me feel bad. It's depressing. The system of white supremacy is sad and depressing. We have to work to solve this problem. Ignoring, pretending this doesn't exist. I don't want to think about this because it hurts my head. None of that is valid, and none of that is going to allow us to solve this problem. He said, this could happen again. Anywho, I asked that question about sympathy for the white officer. Officer McCray is the one who set the body on fire. He was convicted of this, had to go to prison for this, uh, because we just heard a non-white person this past weekend saying that they had empathy for the white man who choked Jordan Neely to death on the New York City subway. Many of the victims, uh, of relatives of Henry Glover, are on video and audio recordings. I forgive these white people who killed my brother, set my brother on for, or set Mr. Glover on how he's related to them. I forgive them. You know, I'm a Christian. That's what we're obligated to do and all that. Follow your religion. But I mean, wow. The of white supremacy, we are supposed to empathize with people classified as white. They're Jesus. They are never dirty. They are never thugs. Now, that old Henry Glover, he was no angel. That's what they say about it. It's it, Tamir Rice, he was no angel. Eric Garner, he was no angel. You know, that Gus T, worthless Negro, old dirty Gus, he was no angel. But these are Jesus victims. Even when they've done wrong, you know, well, you know, he's still a human being. We love him. He did set that nigga on fire, but, and allegedly may have been snickering about it. And it's 1,800 deaths, probably way over that. They don't even know. Like, they don't even know. 1,800 is the minimum count. Katrina casualties. One corpse set on fire and with a bullet. And for the people who say, see, Gusty, this is what I mean. The program is focused on black males. Okay, go back. Hurricane Katrina, A.C. Thompson's report, white vigilante violence. 
he said there were 11 suspicious corpses. Bullet hole. This is not a drowning. This is not, you know, lack of food, heat, that sort of thing. Diabetic. Wasn't able to get my medication. This looks like, hmm, could be a homicide. 11 black male privilege to the max. It was exclusively black male. Danzinger Bridge, you did have whole families get shot. The only people to die on Danzinger Bridge were black males. If you do not know about Danzinger Bridge, shots on the bridge. I wrote a review of that as well, posted it. Uh, I believe the author wrote a review at the front of this book. Those cases are kind of connected, Dancing Your Bridge in this case. Same thing happened, though, where they originally convicted the officer. And, I mean, it's the same thing all the way through. They go shoot all these black people, of course. The only thugs got to be black. They go shoot up all these black people, kill them. Uh, there's a mentally handicapped black male who they shoot. He's on the verge of dying, and they come and literally stomp out his last breath. Black male And then they go and lie about it and plant a gun. And, you know, they were terrorists, lures, rapists. Yep, we got the story together. Practice. Okay, and they make up a witness. They make up a witness. They make up a witness. They say, what? Give us a name. Give us a name. Give us a name. Let's see it. They say, okay, okay, Leroy. They say, no, 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 no. Get out of here. You need that one. Give us a name. Give us a name. Give us a name. Say, uh, 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 Lakeisha. Okay, Lakeisha. Lakeisha. Let's see. Lakeisha saw... <laughs> I'm not making this up. They have a whole book about this, Shots on the Bridge. This is also in the uh, PBS documentary, Frontline, Law and Disorder, but that's like the early part. But it's the same thing. They go through, get a prosecution, and then they get it overturned. It's, oh, my gosh, we got prosecutorial misconduct. They went on Reddit and, you know, the Times-Picayune site made all these nasty comments and all the rest. Oh, this is disgraceful. Vacated, new trials, and, oh, I mean, I, you can't even believe. You can't even have this happen in two different cases. And then, like I said, with the white civilian, no badge, gets his trial indefinitely delayed before he's convicted and serves, I think, like five minutes and then dies. Katrina can tell you a lot about what it means to be white, the system of white supremacy, lots, lots. Anywho, uh, Robert Charles, I wanted to start today's program with Robert Charles. If you don't know who Robert Charles is, you can go back and do some research as well in New Orleans history. Uh, Philip Dre, at the hands of persons unknown. But they wanted to display Robert Charles body after he had been lynched going to pay a hefty amount of money to what they said they were going to pickle and display the body of robert charles black male in new orleans anywho um i see what folks think especially since we have people who survived hurricane katrina uh i cannot emphasize enough those photographs this was 20 years ago, basically. He made point of that. This was at a time when everybody didn't have an iPhone. Everybody didn't have instant access to a digital camera. He said there were a lot of 
digital, HD photographs, non-official, of basically the entire timeline of Henry Glover being shot, dying, on fire, and charred remains. And then even what happened to the skull, which they even have in the documentary. White forensic psychologists, pathologists, who are saying, like, just the fact that the body's been burned to this degree, he said, that doesn't happen. You don't have totally incinerated remains. That doesn't happen. That is, he uses the metaphor, he says, that is Roswell, New Mexico eyes. Roswell, that's like the aliens and E.T. type thing. But that, that doesn't happen. The Roswell number two, where is the skull? That also does not happen. You do not have a car fire where, what? The skull rolled a hundred yards, was disintegrated. What? They have pictures of the skull. Where did it go? There were reports that there was an additional shot to the skull, which seems to be substantiated in some of these HD unofficial photographs that, wow, maybe there was a bullet fired through the skull. That might also be a reason to disregard the skull, and if you want to make sure that there are no teeth left, can't do, you know, a dental identification, and it did take them a lot longer to identify. Who is this? What is this? But those photographs, Kobe Bryant, that just happened. I love in the book. He connects this to the lynching photographs, early 19th century, but this is right now. You think of all the people, all the black people who were in mourning, who were impacted by the death of Kobe Bryant. Lakers playing right now. Kobe Bryant jerseys all over the place. The L.A. Sheriff's Department were doing the exact same Thing with his remains. They literally just had the settlement. $30 million. I would admit, talk about connecting the dots, Dr. Welsing, that's something I would have included as well. This is such a widespread component of white culture. Anywho, not blind spot dedicated and enjoy practicing racism, mocking the death of black people. Anyway, uh, we'll see. The folks who listened in have thoughts to share. Thought I got my headset situation corrected and not really. Soldier through. Uh, make sure that I miss out. Oh, the Martha, I'm so glad I read that. That's why reading is more important than watching television. Number one, I, I think we even had some folks who lived in New Orleans, Louisiana, lived through all of this, and they didn't know some of this information. I didn't know much of this detail. Still learning. That's why reading is so important. That's why I say, hey, study local history. Become an expert about, you know, these things. You can read as many of the books as you can really study. Man. 
him including that about having Martha work in the house, just one of the reasons reading is important. If I was one of those lazy hosts, many white and non-white, lazy hosts didn't read the book, just go listen, what did he talk about in other interviews or whatever, go read a review or what have you, I suspect a lot of folks would gloss over that in this book, not the cows. We've heard from a lot of white guests who've had a Martha in their childhood. That also gives you, I said even, hey, white people have bragged about pawning their offspring off on the help, made movies about it, Al Jolson, Manny, and all of that for centuries. Movies about it and everything, award-winning movies. Got to watch, you know, Gone with the Wind and all that. Let's see. Folks who dialed in, uh, who, I guess, listened, questions, Jared Fishman, uh, thoughts to share. Did you know about Henry Glover, I guess? If you folks who've been with us listening at the cows or listening to the archives, you would have definitely heard Henry Glover mentioned A.C. Thompson, some of the other programs, even, I think, Gary Rivlin. I have to double-check to see. Katrina after the flood, but uh, thoughts from folks. Did you know about this case at all? Let's see. Hey, Gus. Um, yeah, I hope it ain't noisy. I'm in the gym. Um, you know what was real interesting when I asked him will he consider what happened down in New Orleans can he cl- really classify that as a uh, lynching? Um, and then you just put in a, and you just basically said that he compared the photos of the charred remains of the victims in New Orleans to lynching photos from years ago. And when I asked him that question, he seemed confused or didn't really give me a, a, a confident uh, uh, guess in the comparison of um, lynching, you know, of the murders in uh, New Orleans and how they're parallel to the lynchings of maybe, you know, 100 or so years ago. That was real interesting to me. Have you heard? Yes, sir. We can hear you. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Y'all, the question that um, that Miss Lauren asked him about how um, um, about how do white people view um, black males um, that are serious and uh, I've always uh, I always wanted to. Um, know know the answer to that uh, to see that you know a black male that's just serious and you know you know about his business could be viewed you know could make a white person nervous and and it's almost like like criminal that that was that was just that was that was that was interesting For sure, I thought he 
because in the book, he brings that up when he talks about uh, Bernard Clayton. Make sure I get the names correct. But when he, this is one of the victims who was with Henry Glover, uh, Mr. Tanner, uh, Edward King, when they're beaten by enforcement officers and then they take Mr. Glover's body, he's either dead or in the process of dying, they take him and set him on fire and everything. And uh, he's saying when he first meets this black male who is suspicious of him, rightly so, uh, and he says that, man, this guy, you know, he's dark and serious. Hmm. <laughs> like, what in the world? Like, why would... And he called them imposing. I've had people tell, call me imposing, both for my conduct on the program uh, and in real life. And, like, are you serious? Like, imposing. Hmm. Stocky, strapping as well. But, wow. What would be imposing about worthless, shiftless, no-count, Negro males, just because they're being serious, that, I mean, wow, if nothing else, like, dang, Fuller says, do not be the entertainment committee, man, if, at minimum, I'm not going to be hee-haw time around white people, at minimum, even, I think his response there, he said that uh, criminalization, which even that, why would a black person being serious, that means you think that they're a criminal? Like, if they're telling jokes and stuff, like, oh, okay, I guess he's not a rapist. He's all right. He's that funny Eddie Murphy. Okay. But if they're being serious, and yes, sir, no, sir. Uh-oh. What? Is he? Oh, my keys. Did he get my wallet? What? Did come? <laughs> I mean, really, like, dang. Like, okay. Uh you don't have to understand it. We can just ponder on that one. That's why it's so important to study white people as opposed to our brothers and sisters that we don't like and don't get along with and coon of the month and all the rest of it. Let's study the problem. But regardless of what it is, not going to be entertainment uh, chairman, not going to be the president of the entertainment committee, not trying to tell jokes and he hard up. Let's be serious. Let's be, especially when it's time to talk to white people. Let's be serious. Hopefully we model that on this year program. Let's see. Other folks, anybody else? Observations, thoughts? May I be heard? Lauren, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Um, so in answer to your question, I didn't remember Henry Glover's name, although I do remember the incident with the Bobby. Okay, um, but I do remember the incident with the body. I remembered the Donnell Harrington, though. Um, but what I was going to say is $5.50, and that gun is like $16,000, like right now, May 2023. Um, I think he said it was, well, you said it was like 7000 or 7500 and you know, back when that happened, that was 2005. So I just wanted to share that because that is a large amount of money for one gun. And that's all I have. Wow. That's inflation, right? Wow. 75K, or excuse me, uh, 7,500, 7.5K, 7.5K. 
in 2005-ish and nigh on 20 years, like, wow, 16,000? I bet that's still a really sought-after gun. Like, the way that he described it, I, I, I'm not, I'm ignorant, still learning. When I went to look, they have YouTube videos where you can see this video and white people using it, shooting it. I'm sure they are thinking the same. Chris Kyle, the whole time I read this book, because I didn't know that detail about the type of gun that he was using in all of this. Chris Kyle, American sniper that they made the movie about. We read that book too, book club. He also bragged about shooting looters during Katrina. Now, we talked about that. He is accused of lying about a lot of things that could have been one. But, man, that's what to do. Come down. He also didn't live, live in Louisiana. I get to come down for my opportunity to shoot dark people and brag about it. With a $16,000 firearm with military-grade ammunition. This is another one. Pause right there. All of the black people, I'm not talking about you all here specifically, but whatever, even if it was you, all of the black people, all of the non-white people who talk about, hey, we need to get firearms. Talk about get serious. Let's get our firearms and let's go. We're going to shoot and go out and do our marching and not effing around and all the rest of this. Okay. Victims guaranteed qualified, but I mean $16,000 for a sniper rifle. They said Officer Warren, he had a whole personal arsenal. He was offering rifles to other people. You want a rifle? He had a black partner. He asked her, you want a rifle? She said, I got a service issue. Glock, what more do I need? Where are we shooting at? What's going on? Is there an invading army? Negras. Mr. In fact, Mr. Fuller, he said the same thing. He said in D.C., 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. gets assassinated. He said white people that he worked with at a federal job, no less, told him we were hoping, we were wishing you niggers would get rowdy and come to the white part of Washington, D.C. I just got my new rifle. We were up in the trees. I was hoping I was going to get the bus a cap in one of you niggers. You got mouthy here last week, Fuller. You could have kept, man, I, you all had enough sense, so all for nothing. It's in the archives. What does it mean? That's, think about, that's what I'm saying. When they talk about these power outages, that's what you should have in mind and should share with your family and offspring. The power goes out. Don't think it's going to be. We're all in this together and all of that. There were black people who lived in Algiers Point who said, dang, we're neighbors. Nigra, if you come out of that house, it won't be you shoot, we loot. Or excuse me, you did it three times. You loot, we shoot. It's just going to be we shoot. So, but I live here. We shoot. We talked about that with Gary Rivlin. He was the white journalist for the New York Times who stayed at the Louisiana plantation during Katrina. 
Anybody else? Comments? Observations? Yeah. I just wanted to say, um, I know I got the name of the uh, non-white black female's name wrong, and it was Martha. I do apologize for that. Um, but I thought it was interesting that he was so resistant just to give a, a name or a title to her position in the house, um, whether it be a uh, maid, quote-unquote, or a uh, servant, quote-unquote. I thought that was interesting why he was so resistant on doing that. And um, another part, I think you brought it up, Gus, about the, um, I guess, the trafficking that was going on in Guam. I know there's a U.S. military base there, um, so I thought that was interesting part two of, of his book. But that's pretty much it. Mm, I don't think he included the military base part, but I'm I'm not surprised about that at all. Uh, especially you go overseas, that's kind of the same thing as Katrina. Like that's the other side of the world, and you know who's going to tell? It take a long time, as they say, for it to go up the chain of command and all the rest of it. But yet, yeah, I was struck by that because uh, it's it's not as he said, it's not a whole lot of detail in the book. He said when he wrote it the first time, and they said it was distracting, and let's just stay focused on Henry Glover, which I totally appreciate because I suspect many people didn't know about uh, Henry Glover and. There were many other cases, even though it's a book about Danziger Bridge. I'm sure it's a lot of people that didn't know about Danziger Bridge or some of the other shootings. Donnell Harrington, man, it hurt my head. <laughs> All the different uh, cases. But I'm, I appreciate that. But dang, that abuse of children is such a widespread component of white supremacy racism. Uh, another reading, and I put that with. Uh, Martha, I'm bad with names too, even talked about one of the victims uh, is, has difficulty remembering names, probably because of the system of white supremacy racism. They have studies on that uh, neuroscience. I'm trying to go to D.C. for the brain science convention uh, that racism impacts your ability to remember things and sleep and it's devastating. Uh, but Martha, black female who worked in his residence in Atlanta growing up, one, we've had a number of white guests all over the world, same thing. One. Two, I suspect that many of the people who interview him about this book, that is not going to be something that they bring up. And that was one of the first questions that I asked him about. And it was for context. Who are we talking to? How many of you all grew up having a black person work in your house to come fold clothes and put you in bed and all the rest of it? Even if you did, this is a white man. <laughs> in that context, that growing up, that, I mean, hey, Atlanta... That's Margaret Mitchell. She's a native Georgian. Gone with the wind. <laughs> he probably, uh, I should have asked maybe, but I, I would have been willing to bet at least I'd take the over on $5. Have you seen Gone with the Wind? Especially he's over uh, 30. Oh, yeah. Give me the over. You've seen Gone with the Wind at least once. Maybe more. Maybe even read the book. If you lived or born in Atlanta, and especially that time period. But yeah, uh, that was why I mentioned that, and I suspect most people who would talk to him about this book would not, that would not, especially white people, that would not be a point of emphasis, and there's not a lot of detail, which I also thought was interesting, because it wasn't like he had any cool stories about, you know, hanging out with her, or any sort of bond with her, it was just kind of a quick aside and then moving forward and he didn't even give any details really 
when I pivoted to that, I had to add, kind of ask a, a few more questions. And then when you questioned about it, like you said, he was kind of resistant. I think frequently white people are much more comfortable talking racial narrowing as opposed to how you practice white supremacy racism. And I mean, even this relationship, like I said, the fact that she's Martha is a 55 year old black female. You're 10 and you're calling her Martha. Now, I mean, you can say that, you know, that, Hey, we had mama Ruth, but this is not mama Martha. This is not auntie Martha. This is just some black female in freaking Georgia at the time when they still had the Confederate flag on the state flag who works in your white house for how many hours, for how much money, how many days off? Why is she even in that position where she has to do this work? I mean, really, to be called Martha by 10. Does she sign on to that? That's what she, that's, you know, hey, everybody just calls me Martha. And even if she did, because we talked about that before, even if she did, who shaped her brain computer that, yes, that is acceptable. And that's what I should think is okay in this universe. Me, 55-old Martha will say, having a 10-year-old white boy calling me on a first name basis while I'm cleaning up their house. That's why I asked that question. Like, yeah, trying to be a so-called good white person or white person with blind spots or whatever. And it's in the book too. That's the sort of thing that I think of because sometimes I'll ask questions based on things that are in the book. And it'll be like, oh, I don't even want to talk about that. They <laughs> have too many details. You put it in the book, man. It's important, right? I think even something to think about in a text like this, like, dang, the system of white supremacy. Why we continue to be in that sort of position. And even the same thing where they joke about us, go out and kill black people, and then they go and get the help. Some nigga working in the house, and then the sexual rape component of all that, too. Even Rosa Parks talked about that. Says she didn't even want to do that sort of domestic work because of the rape component. Martha give her remembrance for her as well. So she got great compensation and paid vacations as well. Uh, let's see. Any other thoughts? Folks wanted to make sure they got in. For sure. Uh, I did not know about Ronald J. Dominic until last year, really, this time, when we started reading about Joseph uh, G. Christopher. That is interesting that a white attorney who went to New Orleans during this time period, Ronald J. Dominic, that case did get a good bit of New Orleans attention. Man, I mean, all of this is about black men. Once again, Ronald J. Dominic, the vast majority of his victims were black males. Again, they said even, dang, he might have used Katrina as cover, cover meaning I can kill black people, black males, and just dump the bodies. Who knows? They're burning black, they're burning Henry Glover, dumping folks and all the rest of it. I said they don't have an accurate count. Who knows? Storm got him, looter, ah, who cares? Nobody who be missed. But I did think that was interesting uh, to have someone, a white person with this much know and talking to all these people in New Orleans that he would not know about. I mean, Ronald J. Dominic was convicted, serial killer convicted of killing 
approximately 24 people that we know of, they just, he killed more people than Jeffrey Dollar. We can put it in that context. They just had the, the hit Netflix series and all of that. Like, dang. I mean, if it was just one of you all, me, like I said, oh, no, you know, I expect us not to be informed. But dang, like, you didn't hear about that case at all? Hmm, okay. With again, black male privilege, right? Serial killer goes out and is hunting almost exclusively black males. And hardly anybody knows about it. He kills almost two dozen people at least. Don't know about him. Don't know about Henry Glover either. Black male privilege. Uh, learn about Katrina. I can't emphasize enough, especially if you have connections to that area, Louisiana, New Orleans specifically, Gulf South. Learn about if There are so many books uh, on Katrina. Uh, he even told us that this isn't a Katrina book, but just, you know, reading more important than watching television. The Beast I Call Grief, Anthony M. Scott, Walter Scott's brother. Interesting cover art for this book as well. But again, The Beast I Call Grief. I do not support purchasing white books. Uh, if Jared Fisher's booker, book is great. But really, you can wait, get a used copy. That's what I say consistently. If you really gotta have uh, a book and it's written by a white person, just get a used copy. You can do that. They have tons of used books where you can get them for like a penny. Two cents. You know. Whatever. Um, but save your money. I don't think white authors should be profiting from sharing information on white supremacy racism, which is terrorizing non-white people, especially when non excuse me, when white people have not shown any sincere interest in solving this problem. You can't then sit around and profit from, you know, terrorizing me. That's absurd. Uh, but non-white writers read, support the beast I call grief, Anthony N. Scott. Oh, I hadn't heard of it. This book was literally just published like days ago, too. I was like, oh, okay, I feel a little bit better. Like, dang, I hadn't even heard of this book. Like, okay, it was just published a few days ago. So, okay, the beast I call grief, Anthony N. Scott, Walter Scott's brother. We'll check that out. Maybe we can read that in the book club. Uh, once we get done with Columbine, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, fascinating read, and we've only read one installment. This is our required read for the Catherine Massey Book Club. Once a year, reading is so important. This, I think, is an event we should know more, especially with all of these white shooters and the white artillery, everything that we white culture. That's Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, even before Katrina, get my gun and do some killing, especially make sure that I get a black male. Got to. Isaiah Scholes. Got to. But that'll be Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Reading, more important than watching television. I can't emphasize enough as well. I feel like I should do a program on this, but reading is so important because just even in a book like this, in studying word usage, I said stocky. I think that's one of those that is generally applied to black males, along with strapping, thug, of course. Also, dirty, the numbers of times black people are referred to as dirty, while white people are referred to as Jesus. 
that is also, as I said to him, not an accident. And being able to see that as a pattern within a book, books, culture at large, that's something else in terms of, oh, wow, I see the white supremacy all the time in terms of how it's used, the values of white supremacy, how white supremacy is coded in the language, in the way that we think. That's why I say those metaphors of what have you and cream of the crop. We had a lot of uses of the term fair. He used the term fair a lot in his book as well. Again, we're not trying to achieve fairness. The problem is not that we're being treated unfairly. The problem is the system of white supremacy racism practiced, refined, maintained by individuals classified as white. That is not an accident or a blind spot. Anywho, much obliged for folks tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your Monday, spring, Monday evening. Folks could have been doing lots of other things. Uh, Ronald, or excuse me, Robert Charles. Robert, I can't say that. That was how we were going to begin the program today. The only reason I didn't, because it is a longer audio segment, but man, Robert Charles, black male, counter-violence in New Orleans. Uh, I don't even have a tally on exactly how many white people he killed uh, before he was neutralized, terminated. But Robert Charles, there's a long history of white supremacy racism in New Orleans. Uh, and specifically the corrupt New Orleans Police Department brutalizing black people. Whew. So much time. Only so much time in a day, but man, uh, if you are connected to that area at all, that is one right there. You could be studying for a lifetime. Anywho, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy racism. We need high-functioning brain computers to solve this problem. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Make sure I include there were multiple black New Orleans police department officers who did testify for the prosecution against their white colleagues in this case at great personal risk to themselves. We have talked about that before and black self-respect and being courageous. That right then, I mean, hey, this is a notoriously corrupt police department where it would not have been out of the imagination, unfathomable, hey, they could kill me or manufacture a situation where I could be killed and eh, it just happened when held responsible for where they don't come to help me in a dangerous situation type of thing. But that should not go unnoticed. There were multiple black female officers who did testify, tried to do the right thing, 
on behalf of Mr. Glover at great personal risk. No name calling, no gossiping, no throwaway offspring. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.